everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast, a podcast about movies. My name is David Chen, and I don't know about you guys, but I couldn't relate at all with the main character in this week's movie, who's a tech worker in Seattle that clenches their teeth at night. It <laughs> <laughs> also never leaves their home. Yeah. <laughs> Joining me today is Devinder Hardwar. Joke's on you, Kimmy. I've destroyed all of my echoes. So I can commit as many murders as I want. <laughs> and Jeff Kanata. Hey, Kimmy. Play the film cast. <laughs> Joining nice. us today. She is the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. She hol- she's also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Next Picture Show podcast. Tasha Robinson, welcome back to the film cast. You know, I've been waiting a long time to see Steven Soderbergh's rear window, if you know what I mean. <laughs> wow. Yes. Welcome back. Nailed it. Welcome yes. back, Tasha. Oh, we're off to such an auspicious start, everyone. Um, thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash filmpodcast. This month, we got a scream retrospective going on for you. We got some uh, After Dark specific guests joining us exclusively for the After Dark to review Screams 1 through 4. This week, we'll be joined by Brett Arnold to talk about Scream 1 and 2. That's available exclusively to patrons over at patreon.com slash filmpodcast. Uh, this week on the podcast, we got some uh, some film news to cover for you. We've got some what we've been watching, some weekly plugs. We're going to conclude with an in-depth review of Steven Soderbergh's newest film, Kimmy. So let's get into it, folks. Uh, a lot of film news happened this week, but the biggest thing, I think, that we all got to mention is that Ivan Reitman, unfortunately, passed away this week. Oof. Very, very hard. Very young. 75. My goodness. <laughs> Indeed. Well... I think that Ivan Reitman, super talented, and had an unbelievable run uh, of movies. I mean, think about like uh, th- th- this run of movies he had around the Ghostbusters time, right? You got mm-hmm. um, Ghostbusters, Meatballs, Stripes, Ghostbusters, then Ghostbusters to Kindergarten Cop and Dave. I mean, I don't know if I don't know how well respected Kindergarten Cop is, <laughs> but I watched that movie probably thirty times when I was a kid. In this house, very well. Yes, yes exactly, exactly. So quoted. Yeah. So quoted. But uh, who is yeah. your daddy and what does he do? <laughs> <laughs> but Jeff I mean, Kanata. Like, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tasha. I just feel like an awful lot of the career of Evan Reitman, if you if you look back specifically on that run, these movies are not necessarily respected movies, but they're kind mm-hmm. of beloved movies, mm-hmm. and they're they're sure. certainly very heavily watched movies. Indeed, indeed. Um, Jeff, any any sort of favorite Ivan Reitman movies in in your book? Well, yes. I mean, I I, I saw a tweet that I kind of want to steal because it is accurate for me, which is. Uh, Ghostbusters was my first favorite movie of all time. Mm. You know, yeah. And I kind of, I kind of feel like that's accurate. I, I you know, I, it hit me at an age where it just, for whatever reason, checked all the boxes. You know, I mean, of course, I l- loved Star Wars and I loved, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and and all the ki- all the eighties movies that a kid loves. But there was something about Ghostbusters that just felt like the kind of camaraderie that I wanted in my life, you know, uh, the kind of, uh, uh irreverent fun. It, it was, it was nerds. It, it, it was, it was the, it had a, it had a backbone of, uh, of sort of science and nerdiness that really resonated with me. Um, uh, cause I always, you know, I was, I never related to the, 
Peter Venkman character. You know, for me, it was always uh, Ray Stans or, or you know, um, Harold Ramis's character, whose name just mm-hmm. popped out of my head. Egon? Egon Spangler. Yeah. Spangler. Thank you. Spangler. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, so, of course, Ghostbusters is is up there. But you guys have mentioned a number of other really great movies uh, that really we're on repeat on VHS in my house a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, twins, uh, it was a movie that delighted my family, you know, um, (laughs) you know, it's a bunch of movies that I think as Tasha indicated, I watched so many times. And then when I grew up, I learned they weren't that critically acclaimed. Exactly. For me, it's like, wow, these movies were a huge part of my childhood. Right. Yeah. So I'd like to revisit Dave in, in, you know, in the in the context of sort of the political climate of uh, an outsider, <laughs> just some guy in the office, you know, feels less aspirational and and uh, whimsical. Oh, yes, than it does. I, I think uh, that Dave, the 1993 film Dave, hits a lot different today. Uh, <laughs> particularly the scene where Oliver Stone, in the movie appearing as himself, speculates that another outside party has taken over the president of the United States role. Right. And yeah, that, that guy, that character has basically become a significant portion of the American political sphere. these days. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, it, it was a lot of fun back then, less fun today because of what's happened in the real world, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, all I that mean, said, it, great movie, really fun movie. I mm-hmm. think it is. I think it is a, a good movie. And uh, I think it, it actually is, you know, is, is sweet and clever and fun and, uh, like I said, I haven't seen it in a long, long time, but, you know, and then you get a little older, you know, you, you're in your, what, you know, uh, awkward tweens and you love Ghostbusters and you love, you know, those movies. And then you kind of get a little older and you and you, you get, can watch Stripes and Meatballs and, you know, like, Ivan Reitman very much was one of those names synonymous with the 80s, you know, and, yeah. and very much influential on my life. And then this is one that I'm sure no one will bring up, but... I graduated from college, uh, got a degree in acting, and my one of my very best friends who graduated the same year I did, and we both headed down to Los Angeles with big dreams, he got a, a small part in Evolution. Hmm. Uh, oh, wow. And yeah. which is not a, a movie that I think most people remember fondly. Sure. But, it's fine. Uh, but it's like you know, part it was just of this- your sort of. Uh, artistic development is like one of your friends got a role in yes. that movie. Basically, got to, right? you got to be yeah. in a movie directed by Ivan Reitman, and yeah. you know David Duchovny was in it, and it's like it just was, it, yeah. It, it, so his his films, his career, uh, very very powerful in my life. Very, you know, I you hear things about him not being that great of a guy, which mm-hmm. is a bit of a bummer. Um, but uh, you know. In his passing, I, I'd like to look back on his work and and the meaning it had for me and and so many of my peers uh, with fondness and and reverence. Devendra, any uh, favorite Ivan Reitman movies or moments? I think for me, actually, it it was actually Ghostbusters Two was the movie I ended up seeing a lot, and also Kindergarten Cop. But the realization that everybody hates Ghostbusters Two. Was also kind of a new one to me because I thought nothing as a kid, nothing was scarier than Vigo, you know, and the painting yeah. and there are elements of that that yeah, are just kind yeah. of like seared into my brain. But yeah, as, as an adult who understands, you know, uh, what makes uh, movies good or special, I guess the original Ghostbusters is certainly much, much better. 
I'm really wondering what is what is going to happen with that triplets movie. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. They had a uh, Tracy Morgan, I think uh, Eddie Murphy too. Like there, there was something that was a thing announced. Uh, I wonder if that project. Oh, will the go to twins uh, sequel. Is that what you're, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Um, Tasha, any Ivan Reitman thoughts? You know, uh, for whatever reason, I mean, I saw Ghostbusters a hundred thousand times when I was young, and uh, a lot of these other movies, Dave and uh, Junior, uh, are all movies that I did see. But for some reason, when I was very young, the one I was obsessed with was Legal Eagles, the uh, Robert Redford, Deborah Winger movie. Sure. I, oh yeah, I yeah. Feels like I just had an image in my head somehow that this is what adulthood was going to be like. Mm. <laughs> Everybody was going to be beautiful. Uh, the the banter was. <laughs> going to be nonstop. Mm-hmm. Everybody was real, real smart and real, real good at their jobs. And that like, turned out to be all true. All true. Every <laughs> single aspect of it turned out to be true. That was uh, actually course, Ghostbusters for me, too, as yeah. well. That, that, was <laughs> that was Ghostbusters yeah. for me. This is what adulthood is like. Exactly. In this New York. This is why yeah. I'm so glad that I don't live in New York City, because the, the uh, Statue of Liberty, like just mm-hmm. walking around smashing things, has just always been ghouls everywhere, pink just, slime in the sewers. It's just yeah. too much. It's just I don't know. I don't know how locals deal with it. The best thing um, about Ghostbusters too, though, is that it didn't try to just rehash Ghostbusters. You know, <laughs> at least it tried for something a little bit different. That's did true. It? It's certainly did big. It? Did it? Did it? I, there's no Marshmallow Man in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> there is a I mean, Statue of Liberty lady. I mean, there's something yeah. big that's, that's, you know. <laughs> you are pointing out, though, that, I mean, it, it retroactively, honestly, this news made me mm-hmm. retroactively appreciate Ghostbusters Afterlife more because it's like, oh, it's nice yeah. that he got to work with his son on, yeah. on the project. I'm glad. You know? I'm glad. Yeah, it's yeah nice. for sure. Yeah. 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 So. It's, it's, I mean, I, I you kind of chuckle, Tasha, but I do, I do think 75 is young these days. Um, I, I feel like he's... I, I hope that is young. Yeah, I'm on seventy five. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that's a. It's Devendra, kind of a surprising... as a seventy four year old, is is feeling a little weary right now. Yeah, I I've always felt twice my age, so I am I'm almost there. Yeah. I, I see what you mean. I mean, certainly we have, uh, you know, the the Betty Whites of the world are mm-hmm. living decades beyond seventy five. But I, I I still admit that that seventy five. Oh oh gosh, he passed away at seventy five. Just doesn't feel like he had so he had so much life left to live. So, so much so time left. Movies. I, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my dad hope, is older uh, than seventy five. I hope. Oh, I hope man. You know. I, I hope he has many, many years left. And he, yeah. I, I for sure. Ridley for sure. Scott's still cranking out epics. He's 84 years he's old, gonna, you know? So. He's going to be making movies on his deathbed. Yes. Just like Indeed. still the shooting. This is a movie shot in my hospital room <laughs> on an iPhone. Ridley yeah. Scott's final feature. Uh, I do hope Bill Murray does a fantastic, like, uh, eulogy or speech at his uh, at his funeral yeah. or something. Yeah. Like, I hope, like, there is joy in this for, you know, for all the people and lives he's affected. Yeah. Uh, well, he has definitely shaped our cinematic upbringings greatly. Um, thanks for everything you gave the world, Ivan Reitman. It's been incredible. All right, guys. Uh, let's talk briefly about the Oscars. Um, you know, what What better time to talk about the Oscars than six days after everyone is done talking about them? <laughs> sure. But the nominees came out last week after uh, the podcast was released. And I should point out, typically the podcast released on, uh, releases on Tuesday mornings. Uh, but for the next couple weeks, we will be releasing on Wednesday mornings for scheduling reasons. We'll be recording on Tuesday nights, uh, and that will push back the After Darks a day later as well. So just a quick reminder about that. But uh, yeah, the Oscar nominations were announced last week, and uh, I, let, let's just like I, I'm curious if you guys have any any surprises or big reactions. I'm going to just say that for me, the biggest surprise 
was Drive My Car, yeah. which received four major nominations. Best Director, yep. Best Picture, Best uh, Adapted Screenplay, and Best International Feature. That is incredible for a movie that basically 99.9% of people in America yeah. have not seen. The, the entire like uh, hype around that movie is film nerds in New York and LA. Yes. For, you yes. Know, that's they they it. have and driven the hype around Drive My Car. Now it's in and... 100 cities, but still only those cities. Right, right. Eventually, I, I, like, HBO, I can't believe right? it's not even on video on demand yet. You know what I mean? Like, it's not it video really... on demand. It's going to be on HBO Max. So that yes. is a, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But that's kind of the big surprise for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually really rooting for that to pick up some awards. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious if there's anything that stuck out to you guys. If not, I have a few more uh, things I want to point out. But yeah. The the big, I mean, there, there's some good stuff in the Best Picture category, but the big miss is The, the Green Knight. Yes, which is exactly. Just, yeah, Green Nowhere. Knight got completely shut out, right? Nowhere. Yeah. Um, as did French Dispatch, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So French Dispatch also got nothing. Um, those are two movies that I certainly would put up against many of the movies that did get nominated, you know, in terms of yeah, many categories. Yeah, now we can have that don't look up conversation about <laughs> if that movie wins Best Picture, I mean, that's going to be something. It's distinctly it's possible. It's not going to. No, it, it is won't. distinctly possible. West Side Story is going to win, and it's not going to be close. Oh, that's true. That's A lot true. of people are saying yeah. the money's on Power of the Dog, actually, because Power of the Dog re- received a lot of uh, mm-hmm. nominations across many categories, which is generally a pretty good sign. Yeah, I feel like this is well, I believe. Spielberg, right? mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and yes, yeah, Spielberg, uh, what's interesting too is this is the second time that Jane Campion will have gone up against Steven Spielberg in the Best Director category. Um, <laughs> okay, I think so it was 1994 for the Piano versus Schindler's List. Uh-huh. And Schindler's um, List won. Do you realize she is only the second woman in history to be nominated twice for Best Director? Uh, I do realize that. And that yeah. is very sad. Um, but I think she actually has a chance of clinching it this time. She's so, going to stop putting out movies the year that Spielberg puts out a movie. You know what I'm saying? There, it's, it's a bitter rivalry. You yeah, know? maybe it's, it's deliberate. For decades. Yeah, She's just watching indeed. his schedule. And, all right, all right. We've been holding on to this movie for three years, but it's time now, Stephen. <laughs> I gotta yeah. say, if I had to pick my best picture, I think this movie has zero chance. But I would pick Nightmare Alley. Yeah, you know, same. That's same. my favorite I, movie of this of this list of best picture nominees. Would mm. you have rated Nightmare Alley your number one movie of last year, Jeff? I don't think so. I still think I would have uh, would have selected um, um, Inside. I just that movie was really powerful to me. But Nightmare mm-hmm. Alley may have been number two. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, or yeah. Two. It, it, it would have been the top five for sure. I agree. Nightmare Alley is definitely in my like top three out of these best picture ones, right? Uh, but I don't know. I'm I'm really rooting, kind of rooting for Drive My Car. By the way, the best picture nominees were. Drive My Car, Nightmare Alley, Don't Look Up, Dune, Belfast, Licorice Pizza, Power of the Dog, West Side Story, King Richard, and Coda. Those are the top mm-hmm. 10 movies. A um, couple of other observations I want to make. Uh, one is that there were two couples nominated. Uh, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers and Javier Bardem mm-hmm. uh, for Being the Ricardos. And Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst for Power of the Dog. And they were nominated in four separate categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we could see two couples dominating <laughs> the entirety of the acting performance. That is a, uh, that, is a, that is a fact without meaning. <laughs> I mean, as, every time I see Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst together, I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's Good for, yeah, good for those exactly. kids. Nice. Yeah. Love those what kids. a cute that's couple. Nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Notable. For absolutely no reason, that that little factoid, David. You know, Jeff, wow, when Jeff. you and your wife are nominated for something together, and somebody wants to highlight that as an yeah. interesting is, is thing, smell some uh, sour grapes yeah. down. Wow. Yeah, is that what's uh, wow? 
Well, uh, sorry, sorry, Jeff. I guess you have some extremely meaningful Oscar factoids. You want to drop some <laughs> extremely meaningful ones for us? No, I wanna... just, you know, stay quiet when I don't have anything <laughs> substantial to contribute. I appreciate that. Is it possible Do you That's what one thing people <laughs> note about me is yeah, how yeah. I oh. often stay quiet. Jeff, without... very, very well known for staying quiet on the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> is um, it possible that Jeff was hoping to go to the Oscar ceremony with Jesse Plemons mm, and feels a little I mean, shut out? I mean, entirely Dude, possible. ever since Friday night lights it's been my dream <laughs> i also want to call out flea was nominated in three separate categories uh it was nominated for best documentary best animated film and best international film every time you say um, that I, f- I think you're talking about the red hot chili peppers no <laughs> it's a very different movie. movie yeah uh, yeah which i think you know is, is worth checking out but o- overall i think that the vast majority of these movies are movies that most people haven't seen and I'm kind of bummed out by that, guys. You know, because there used to be a time not that long ago when the movies that were nominated, tons of people had seen. You know, like they well, were the they're going to be able to see these like by the time ever. the Oscars. Can I can yeah. I make a, a a prediction on for the Oscars this year? Yes, it will set a new record low for viewership. Hundred percent, probably. I think yes, it's extremely absolutely. possible. And yeah, the the Academy's nominations seem to become you know be going further and further away from what the mainstream is. Uh, mm-hmm. The biggest one that was notable to a lot of people: no Spider-Man, no Way Home nominations at all, right? Yeah, not even in effects or anything like that. Yeah. Well, it did get a it did get a visual effects. It did get a visual oh, it did. Effects, but people were hoping it would get a Best Picture nomination or you know oh, yes, some other category. Is. Yeah, yeah but, Kevin Smith, Big Mad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I, I made some content about uh, these nominations and, like, a lot of the comments I got were, I haven't seen most of these films, you know, but, and I think but that's... But by the time the Oscars come around, people will be able to see most of these films. It's true. People it's can already see most services. of these films. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. The, the, the vast variety of them are, are, at this point, already on streaming services yeah. or rental so services. So, in fact, uh, we would say, David Chen, your argument is horseshit. Just complete. <laughs> what we just what destroyed is, it. The, the argument is not that the movies are unavailable. The the argument is that most people haven't seen them, sure. um, and I think that's evident in terms of their box office, but also uh, their popularity on streaming services. Yeah, and, so, and to some other degree, you, that's mm-hmm. a, a feature, not a bug. Like the the mm-hmm. whole point of the award ceremonies has always been like let's recognize things that may not be as commercial, that may not yes. be as known, that are pushing the boundaries that are surprising us and uh, impressing us. And the Oscars have always had a reputation as going a little too middlebrow, a little too over-prioritizing, particularly suffering. The Mm -hmm. the Oscars love movies, movies about suffering and movies about working in Hollywood and very occasionally movies where people do both. So it doesn't bother me that most people haven't seen these movies. The awards, even the nominations are really just uh, a form of recommendation. And traditionally, there is a a pretty large financial bump that happens for any movie that actually wins an Oscar, but much smaller, but still significant financial bump for anything nominated for an Oscar. So Mm -hmm. This is in, you know, in a world where so many people are staying home from the movies and streaming everything. And there are a a billion things to stream at any moment. And the field is very confusing. People don't have to watch the Oscar ceremony to look at the winners the next day and say, oh, okay, maybe I'll maybe I should finally get around to seeing, say, Power of the Dog or West Side Story. West Side Story, so underseen in in cinemas 
And, you know, given the timing and giving Omicron and given people's maybe hesitance about something that's a remake of a classic, that's understandable. But I think whether it wins Best Picture or not, just the fact that it was nominated in multiple categories means maybe people will now seek it out on streaming services. Mm -hmm. A Mm -hmm. a lot more people will see these movies. I I think that's that's actually like Oscars more so now than ever is is a tastemaker type of thing. Like I, I think of other awards, quote unquote awards, like the MTV Movie Awards will give you what you want right the stuff you've already seen the stuff cho- like by fan best Man kiss best kiss <laughs> the upside hey, down kiss from spider-man when that one thing happened i liked that thing let's <laughs> let's talk about how much we liked that thing exactly yeah well I, there's actually an argument to be made you know to even further underscore your point tasha is there's an argument to be made that a lot of these movies wouldn't even be made or released in theaters Absolutely. Were it not for the Academy Were it not Awards. for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Particularly when it comes to the movies that Netflix is making specifically in its we need awards and respectability category. Yeah. These days, it's hard to imagine somebody spending $40 million on a solemn, like long, quiet, semi-revisionist Western adaptation of a 1967 novel in which Benedict Cumberbatch plays a cowboy, where the (laughs) primary themes are an exploration of hidden sexuality and the nature of masculinity. Like, there is no producer in the world at a a major studio that's looking at that crossing his desk and saying, that's going to make a billion dollars. Stick Tom Holland in it and we're golden. Here's $40 million. But Streaming services are so hungry for clout, for respectability, for notoriety, for recognition that they're giving a lot of like really, really good filmmakers that have had struggles to finance their movies, just big piles of money and saying, go do what you want. It's and kind of funny. Yeah. We're getting great that- movies out of it. Yeah. It's sort um, of like the or the recreation of the old Hollywood system too, in a way, oh, right? Like so we're a studio, is. it just wants I want to be better than that studio. So here's <laughs> here's as much money, more money than anybody's seen. Make me an epic. It's just funny. History is repeating itself all yeah. over. Yeah. Well, Let's especially with all Let's of these. Let's take a quick break, actually. Uh we'll be right back. We'll have more talk about the Oscars in just one moment after we thank a sponsor. Hey, I gotta jump in here and tell you about our sponsor, Theragun. Oh, <laughs> I love my Theragun. You've heard me talk about Theragun before. I still use it. My wife and I are addicted to this thing. We are stressed out. Are you stressed out? I bet you're stressed out. I often hurt myself just getting out of bed. I rely on my Theragun. This is a device made for elite athletes, but also knuckleheads like me. Who? Can I tell you what I did Yesterday, uh, it snows at my house now. I live in the Colorado, and so it snows here. It gets a little icy. I had to move a bed outside because it didn't fit down the stairway. I had to move a bed frame. Uh, I slipped on the ice. I fell down. I hurt myself. I ran. Well, I didn't run because running hurt. But I moved as quickly as I could toward my Theragun because Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power. And it's also as quiet as an electric toothbrush. This thing does wonders for my aches and pains, for my stresses. I will Theragon my wife's neck and shoulders before she goes to bed, her lower back. She finds it so soothing. And you don't even need to do it for very long. It's incredible. The Gen 4 Theragon doesn't just feel good. It gets to the source of the pain by releasing tension using Theragun's signature percussive therapy 
which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. We just don't even, we don't even do it more than about a minute total. And you just feel so much better. Whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out, an injury, or just the stresses of everyday life, there is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. The OLED screen and design make you feel like you're holding something from the future. Just go to their site and check it out. And the Theragun app learns from your behaviors and suggests guided routines. Theragun is trusted by 250 professional sports teams like Real Madrid and elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, and hundreds and thousands of customers. And me. I'm telling you, I use it. I love it. Try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. Go to therabody.com slash filmcast right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's therabody.com slash filmcast therabody.com slash f-i-l-m-c-a-s-t yeah as far as the studio system recreation goes i I, we're just seeing more and more of these massive deals like let's let's give ryan murphy 200 million dollars in order to secure his services for the next Mm -hmm. several years you know let's lock down mark millar let's lock down the, the people who made game of thrones whatever all of these streaming services are looking more and more to let's let's sign a package deal where we get all of your output where we get first first right of refusal on everything you think about making for the next two, five, ten years. And that more than anything feels like a recreation of the Hollywood studio system. It's just we we own everything that you think about. Here is more money than God. I think that one thing I'm curious about, and I think you guys have made good points about uh, like a lot of these films exist to win awards, you know, in the sense that ne- that's why Netflix is financing them. Uh, I think one thing I'm curious about is this is the uh, year where I think Netflix has a real chance at winning Best Picture. They have never won Best Picture before. They've always wanted to. They've spent hundreds and hundreds upon millions, hundreds of millions of dollars trying to win Best Picture on movies like Roma and The Irishman uh, and uh, Bong Joon-ho movies and stuff. Like, you know, and they've, they've never won it and they might win it this year. And the question is, what happens after they win it? Are they, they going to pull keep, all their money? <laughs> right? Are, are they going to keep? Are they going to keep uh, trying to win it, or is he going to be like, you know what, you know, Alexander wept for there were no more lands to conquer. I am done doing this. And there, there let's will, put it all into let's put it all into red notice from now on. You know, like, there'll be a new category in everybody's Netflix account. Just one movie. Our Oscar winner. Our Oscar yeah. best picture winner. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think it is it is an open question for me. If Power of the Dog or Don't Look Up take best picture, what is Netflix going to do in the future? And are they going to keep funding movies like Power of the Dog? The, de- you know? the, de- so. the next day, we, we wake up in the morning after the Oscar ceremony where Netflix wins their first best picture. And the announcement is Netflix greenlights Red Notice 4, 5, 6, and 7. <laughs> you say that, but we are also... You say that jokingly, but we're living yeah. in a world where apparently four more avatars are coming, Jeff. So. Netflix yeah. now owns yeah. that that Rock true. Johnson. That's amazing. <laughs> you'll, you'll, re- you'll remember that Avatar was nominated for Best Picture. Yes. Thank you. Yes, mm. that's what... I, anyway. I'm uh, not even sure I believe that we're in the multiverse uh, universe <laughs> where there's an av- going to be an Avatar 2. Yeah, like, it's true. It's until true. that movie is actually... In my eyeballs, I will not believe in it, let mm-hmm. alone believe in the 50-some the sequels. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see whether Netflix feels like it's gotten the gains that it needs out of yeah. a Best Picture winner. I, I mean, I feel like 
ultimately like what they're what they're going for is respectability and recognition and if they win best picture and then they look at the bottom line and say well we threw 40 million dollars into that we got 18 new subscriptions <laughs> they they might in fact shift their uh like uh, accounting in terms yeah. of okay what what actually does make us money what does actually get us recognition in a crowded field i read a great article at the angler this week about like giving the two by two sort of business grid right like Netflix wins, Netflix doesn't win, and then in each category, they either will double down or pull back, you know? And I think any of those permutations is possible at this point. So we'll see. I can't um, imagine that the the folks chasing a best picture win at Netflix are only interested in one best picture win. I, I, it's I, sure. I, 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 they're all, well, they're, they're not. all a bunch of Tom Brady's over there looking like, <laughs> how many rings can I get? I think anything is possible, Jeff, but also uh, they've spent, Lots of money in ways that I don't think are yielding the return that they should, and Ooh, um, they're, they're, and their stock is not doing well, Jeff. It's not well, they like, are from drowning a business perspective. They just raised my fee two bucks. You know, it's uh, <laughs> they're not drowning in money though; they're drowning in debt. There yeah, was a yeah. point. Exactly. I yeah. haven't it's looked like at the soon. financials on this, but exactly as of a couple years ago, they had leveraged twelve billion dollars in debt like your your two bucks are not paying the rent for them and <laughs> i have i have really just been wondering for years now like what happens if something shifts slightly and they have to pay back like two million two billion dollars worth of debt and like the whole streaming service could literally just like fold overnight and what happens then to all of that original content from all of these amazing creators that they yeah. just piled money on this yeah. is like a deeper story about the way startups work now, but basically pour more money than you actually have into this thing. If thing fails, uh, slowly walk away and declare bankruptcy. <laughs> Just like that never happened. Uh, don't look yeah. back. What, it's like an explosion. Doing now? Yeah. Don't, so, don't, yeah. don't ever look back I, I, at the explosion. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with you that if you're Ted Sarandos at Netflix, you probably want to win as many best pictures as possible. I don't know if the financial situation will allow it, um, mm-hmm. but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, you guys have, I agree with you guys that these movies getting nominated is going to benefit them greatly financially. And I think that's uh, that's a good thing because many of these movies are underseen or small indie films. Um, West Side Story, by the way, for those who are curious, is going to be doing a re-release, I think, in a couple weeks. So it'll be, be back in Disney. theaters. Disney and, Plus as well, It'll be right? on Disney Plus and I think HBO Max, too, in March mm. as well. So... Um, for those who didn't have a chance to check it out, then uh, you'll have your chance. But I also want to mention one more thing about the Academy Awards. Um, I think this might be the strongest five nominees of animated feature film ever. Just it's as a group, good. it's a group. Yeah. There's no. I mean, I haven't seen Flea, but based on your comments oh, about Jeff, it, Jeff, you will, you will, yeah, crumble. Uh, yeah, that's Flea. why I haven't yeah. seen it. I, I don't know if I could endure it, but. Um, uh, the others I have, and they're all excellent. I mean, there's the animated feature film category usually has such a clear winner. And mm-hmm. usually there's a, you know, it's it's kind of filled out with a couple of like really kind of commercial like kids movies, you know, it it tends to be that, that way. And I feel like even the commercial kids movies in this uh, grouping are really artistically high caliber. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Mitchell's versus the Machines is probably the the most sort of pop, popcorn film but it is really great i mean artistically uh daring and interesting and uh, you know ryan the last dragon is great luca i adore uh and canto is beautiful i think the the all of these nominees i think are deserving 
each of them could win. I, I don't know who this front runner is here. Maybe no, I think Encanto, unquestionably. Mm. That movie's just been such a phenomenon. Yeah. Though in the the area of not exactly Oscar snubs, because this is one of those things where uh, it's it's what the studio put up for the Oscar. But there is there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that the song from Encanto nominated for Best Original is uh, the, the Spanish language song that plays. I guess over the climax of the film, um, mm-hmm. but in a just in a very low key sort of way, as opposed to the the like three bangers that people cannot stop singing. <laughs> yeah, and I know it's not called uh, most catchy original song or most most memorable original earworm or anything like that, uh, but it does feel a little bit odd given how much the Encanto conversation has revolved around, you know, two, three specific songs Mm -hmm. uh, that this completely different song is the one that's up for the award. Yeah. uh, We don't talk about Bruno, probably like one of the most viral songs. I don't even think was submitted for this category, if I'm not mistaken. So I don't believe it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But who, who, who's can account for uh, Oscar submission taste? I mean, I I do wonder like the thought process. I would love a breakdown, you know, uh, fly on the wall uh, in that meeting of how they decided to choose that, because that's very, very much the the 90s Disney thing, right? Where you take the most epic sweeping song, maybe, and not the one that is technically catchiest or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, I mean, it kind of goes back to uh, Blame Canada and the South Park movie. Mm -hmm. Like it was maybe the last time a song that was kind of expressly funny, catchy, and and lively mm-hmm. ended up in the category as opposed to the ballad from the movie, whatever the ballad, the the respectable, uh, emotional, uh, emotionally restrained song from the movie tends mm-hmm. to be the one that they put up for the awards, which mm-hmm. I, again, I suppose is just, you know, looking back at the Oscars and reading the past and saying, well, you know, they, they don't like things that people like. It's This is not a populist award. Yeah, yeah, having I mean, uh, Robin Williams sing your song at the ceremony. So, so, wouldn't want any more of that kind of fun. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I would agree with you, Tasha, your overall point that, like, it's not the job of the Academy to mirror what popular mm-hmm. uh, opinion is. You know, I, I'm not saying they should do it. I'm just saying I miss the days when it was like Titanic won a shit ton of awards or King, uh, Return of the King, you know, won like tons of awards. And it's like it was nice to feel like you could celebrate with like everyone who had also seen the movies that you love, you know? That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying they should have changed it. I'm just saying I miss those days. So, um, okay, before we close this out, guys, uh, why don't uh, anyone have a, you, you want to list your favorite best picture? What are you guys rooting to win best picture out of these 10 films? Mm. Anyone? So, Jeff, well, you've already put Nightmare Alley. I already Alley mentioned there, right? uh, uh, Nightmare Alley, but I, I will say uh, to not answer your question, uh, I'm, I'm, I just wanted to really note that I'm really glad the original screenplay nomination had, had room for worst person in the world. Mm hmm. That's, yeah. th- that's a, a, a little pet root that I'm rooting for in that category. Got it. Do you, uh, and is Nightmare Alley your best picture one? Absolutely. Uh, nice. I think it has zero chance, but I, yeah. I Agreed. would be ecstatic if it won. I would also be really excited about it. Devendra, do you have a favorite best picture of one of these? I feel like, you know, I, I love so many of these movies, but the one I would like to see uh, in terms of somebody who needs like more wins right now is The Power of the Dog. I think Jane Campion should yeah. get like she needs more. She needs to make more stuff. She needs more like clout. And it's, it sucks that, you know, her career has been not that many movies, unfortunately, and one great TV show. Uh, but yeah, the movies have come far, few and far between. So I want to see more from her. Tasha Robinson, you have a uh, Best Picture nominee you're rooting for? 
Well, let's see. Can we get a statement from Netflix as to whether they'll keep <laughs> making movies like this if Power yes, of the Dog wins? Right. Are you are I'm, you going to give uh, Jane Campion like a big chunk of that money to just keep going? You know, yeah, put it all on Red Notice. <laughs> <laughs> Jane Campion's Red Notice. Yeah. If, oh my God! I, 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 I would watch that movie. The uh, the sophisticated layers of uh, thought about the the complicated power balance between men and women in Red Notice Eight exactly. really surprised exactly. everybody. They, they just kind of blew people away. Now, granted, the movie is uh, three hours long, and there are no action sequences yeah. in it the rock <laughs> is just whittling for 20 minutes like staring uh, off whittling into the and distance. telling a story yeah. about his childhood that doesn't actually seem to affect anything in the movie <laughs> but if you if you consider the nuance of it i don't know I, I i don't feel like i've got a ton of skin in this game um apart from rooting for green knight to win on a write-in i i like a lot of these movies but i i don't have a like a deep passionate feel of uh my god i i really want this to win that said i still have not gotten around to seeing drive my car which i'm told i'll i'll love so maybe i should root for that because if it wins best picture i will absolutely be forced at gunpoint to watch it even if i haven't gotten around to it yet i'm gonna say drive my car just because it would be such a huge upset uh, if it won i think and it would also be i think the third year in a row Mm -hmm. that a film directed by an asian person has won which i think would probably be pretty unprecedented so uh, that would be very exciting. It, it would be exciting. It, it would then... be. I remember when Parasite won, and you know the film nerds were excited. Uh, a lot of regular people were like, "What the hell is this movie?" <laughs> now you want me to watch a movie about a 1980s sob? Is that what we? <laughs> this is what we've yeah. come to as a culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 indeed, exactly. I love. We I say love yes. the chaos of it. I love, love the it. chaos of it. So. <laughs> Anyway, uh, well, those are uh, the Best Picture nominees and the Oscars in general, and um, we will give it the appropriate amount of attention, I think, which is we'll talk about it one more time after the victory, after the uh, ceremony, <laughs> and never again until the next year. Well, so. if it's a, if it is, don't look up that wins. It's going to be a lot oh, of yeah. uh, oh, Jeff Kanata oh, There'll be weeks of recriminations yeah. about yeah. that. It's going to be amazing. I, I I would say I'm not going. I'm not joking. I'm I'm, I'm being 100 percent serious. There is a more than 50% chance, in my opinion, that Don't Look Up wins. That movie I'm, I'm is beloved that right. by Hollywood and uh, Jeff Kanata. So yes. I think it has a strong chance. I mean, yes. it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jeff Kanata. If, uh, if, if, if you want a best picture that is of its time, uh, in, you know, inextricably mm-hmm. of its time. That's right. And, uh, You're right. That's, that's your pick. I don't, I don't deny for that. Every, like, I, yeah. For every moonlight, there is a green book. And I think that, you know, this is going to be the corrective uh, that the Academy serves for, you yeah. know, Nomadland and Parasite. It's like, it's time for the don't look up to come. <laughs> but also here, so. probably the corrective we deserve because yes. uh, oh, that, sure. we are in a hellfire of a society right now. So sure, exactly. fine. I will say, David, the uh, the Vegas odds makers really strongly disagree with you, and I try to live my life around the what the what bookies say as mm. much as possible. Smart. Okay. So, what are they saying? Okay. Power of the dog? What are they saying? Uh, you know what? I I don't even know. I just read that uh, <laughs> they 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 have don't look up at like uh basically a negative five thousand percent chance of winning. Wow, it's, it's unbelievably oh, it. far yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, if you believe that strongly in it, like that's a that's a pretty good bet. Hey, to your point though, uh, David, about uh, about Titanic. Yeah, I mean, is there an argument to be made that that's Dune? Um. 
kind of, but Dune di- only did okay at the box office. Yeah, yeah. You know, D- Dune I think cracked around a hundred million domestic, whereas Titanic at the time was like the best performing sure. film of all time. You know, so, yeah, I guess Spider Man would yeah. be that the comparison there. But, but yeah, Dune, mm-hmm. Dune is there like is, a decent, it's is a like a decently popular movie. film. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bummer that uh, Denis didn't get nominated for Best Picture, but the movie did get ten nominations. So and he's got he's got his yeah. Return of the Kingdom. He's good. Yeah, yeah. He's, exactly. It's hugely possible that like when Dune Part Two comes out, that's when it's going to be right. time to rake in the awards. So we'll see. Assuming Netflix hasn't come in with Red Notice Ten by then, but yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Do you think they're so, just going to start putting out three of those a year? Like, yeah. how are we? How are we going to sure. get that I think far? We just, that I think fast. one just debuted during the podcast. <laughs> so. All right. Um, That's what the red notice is. <laughs> Netflix's color, and you're just notified that yes. a new yeah. rock new thing. New movie thing. has come out. Indeed. All right. Um, so let's get to what we've been watching, folks. Speaking of Netflix, I watched a bunch of stuff on Netflix this week. I'll try to run through it relatively quickly. But speaking of movies that Netflix probably is never going to make again, <laughs> Big Buck. Yeah. The movie I saw. This is a movie by director Jean-Pierre Genet. And I'm going to read the plot summary from the internet. Suburbanites are locked in for their own protection by their household robots while an android revolt rages outside. That's the plot of Big Bug. It's basically a Black Mirror episode directed by Jean-Pierre Genet. Now, Jean-Pierre Genet is the director behind such films as uh, Amelie, probably his biggest hit, Delicatessen, Mm -hmm. City of Lost Children. This guy is somebody who... Are you, what what are we doing here? (laughs) Alien 4. Alien 4, yes. Alien Resurrection. Sure, Um, sure. This is somebody who I would say is key to my cinematic upbringing. You know, Jeff, the mm-hmm, way you were talking mm-hmm. about Ivan Reitman earlier, I would say, I mean, Jean-Pierre Genet has not made as many films as Ivan Reitman, but uh, I, I would say he was very sort of instrumental in me developing as a film appreciator, you know? And mm-hmm. I loved movies like Delicate. Delicatessen, it felt like, the first time I watched it, I felt like I was discovering something special because it sure. wasn't, you know, back then and when the movie came out in 1991, that's not like a widely available film. You got to work hard to get access to that movie, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is incredible. You know, I, I got to follow everything this guy yeah. does. That and City of Lost Children are just like fever dreams, you know, yeah. movies. So, yeah, love them. I, but, I just want to point out that it's very different than what I was talking about with Ivan Reitman. But yes, go mm-hmm. go ahead. I mean, I'm not okay. You see, uh, David Chen's uh, taste palette was built know, with artisanal. Like, the artisanal. way you, yeah. your yeah. mind was opened <laughs> up by the comedic stylings of uh, a man pretending to be pregnant uh, is, is how I was when I was seeking out these little-known films and uh, expanding yeah. my mind with these incredible artistic flavors. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly I, the same thing, Jeff. It's I, the same thing. I, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I, I can't tell if you're making fun of me or making fun of me for making fun of you. But I wasn't trying. No disrespect was intended, Jeff. I feel like, uh, no. I, f- I feel like I'm getting, you know, misinterpreted quite a bit on tonight's podcast. <laughs> well, I think but anyway, it, it was. A, it felt like a false equivalence to me. Like, okay. Uh, well, you know, sorry. You know, I, you know how your your cinematic <laughs> tastes were shaped. By the guy who made a movie called The Meatballs. You know that? You know, you know that? That one? Uh, yeah, about the okay. camp counselor yeah. who uh, likes boobs. You know that one? <laughs> uh, you know how your entire persona and filmic taste was shaped by that man? Well, it's exactly the same as the way mine was shaped by this incredibly obscure but fabulously talented director. <laughs> Wait, All there right. was a movie uh, made in the 1980s about a count- camp counselor that liked boobs? <laughs> Did people incredible. even like boobs in movies incredible. in the 80s? That's a thing? Um, 
Well, Jeff, uh, I'm sorry if uh, I came off in a, in a negative way. I was no, honestly just trying to find a point of commonality between, <laughs> you, you know, like I was, it was a genuine good faith thing I was I, trying to say. So. I know. I just, um, I, it occurred to me that it was funny. It is a funny equivalence. Um, yes. But, you know, that's we do that all the time here on the podcast. Anyway. Okay. All that said, his movies are really wacky and weird. <laughs> and also, uh, he has trouble getting financing for these movies. And he said at one point... You know, one day if I have enough difficulty making movies, I'm going to make one for a streamer as a quote unquote last resort, is what he said. Oh, dang. Uh, lo and behold, Big Bug <laughs> drops onto Netflix with zero fanfare, no festival run or anything like that. And sad to say that the movie is very bad, in my opinion. Um, it is, it, this is the first movie I've watched in a very long time that is hard to get through. You know, like mm. it, at, at like five to 10 times throughout watching this movie, I'm like, I really should stop watching. I, yeah. I should put this away, press pause, never unpause it. <laughs> and I think that the reason is um, it's basically an, er- uh, an episode of Black Mirror, but like with a very goofy sort of off the wall, off kilter tone. And it made me realize why Black Mirror works to the extent it does, which is it is deathly serious. Like every well, episode of Black Mirror is deathly serious. And th- this actual premise, the exact same premise was done in Love, Death and Robots. It's one mm. of the John Scalzi episodes. Yes, where, yes, I remember. Yeah, that. the smart home stuff. That. And that, it looks a little weird. It's a little funny and quirky, but it's not as like hyper stylized as uh, this yeah. movie looks to be. I'm not going to say every episode of Black Mirror, Tasha, mm-hmm. but I think most episodes of Black Mirror take themselves very seriously. There's I, an occasional I think the one ones, that's... I yeah. think the mm-hmm. ones that work best do take themselves seriously, yes. but I also think that there's an unrelievedness about Black mm-hmm. Mirror that gets very wearying over time. Oh, and, yeah. you know, it is, it is part it of that. You know, what if, what if toasters but evil? Like, what, what, if, what if our cell phones tried to murder us? Like, what kind if of robot tone dog, to it? But, bad. but, but yeah. say what you will about the tenets of Black Mirror, at least it's an ethos is what I'm saying. You know, oh, like, man, we it is uh, definitely an ethos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what I'm saying is like, is okay. Like, I'm not saying I love Black Mirror all the time, but at least I'm like, oh, I appreciate that it's going for a thing. Whereas because this movie is so goofy, it felt like it's not even taking its own premise seriously. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Jeff, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I I feel like Black Mirror, I don't don't know what year the first season of Black Mirror was, but it feels like long enough ago that it was, it was kind of, doing that before it was evident that that's just the way the world is. Right. Yeah. Initially, I remember when it first came out, it was like astounding, groundbreaking. Yeah, it was pointing things out. It's like, oh, wow, no, yeah, that is a possibility. And now it's just like, no, that's just the world we live in. Yeah. That's it. You know? Yeah. So well, I mean, there's Big also Bug. been like oh. a thousand TV shows since then, mostly episodic, mostly anthology, mostly dark science fiction that mm-hmm. have attempted to mimic it. And yeah. as as always happens, you know, that that kind of waters down the original theme a little bit like it can be hard that that I think it was actually the very first uh Black Mirror episode, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the one about the um, the politician forced to yeah. have sex with a pig on live yeah. television. That's, yeah. that, that's your that's, introduction to the world of Black that Mirror. That is still yeah. just like scabrous. Like it's still strongly observational yeah. and uh, dark and also frightening. Also true. Apparently. Also true but based on a really, true story, apparently. We yeah. later learned. But yeah. And, yeah. and yeah, just yeah, really retroactively accurate. true. <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. accurate about, uh, you know, human nature, essentially. But then there have been so many films since then about... Uh, I, you know, I've been captured by a madman, and if ten thousand people view this uh, website, I'm gonna get killed. Like the idea has been just hit over and over and over, and it feels like Black Mirror started to like lose things to demonize, like run out of. Well, what if? Like, what if? What if? 
I don't know. What if you're well, a, a <laughs> smartwatch, uh, but evil? Well, I feel like the movie we're reviewing tonight might could have been a Black Mirror episode. Mm, in a lot yeah, of ways. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, I felt like this movie, Big Bug, by John Pierre de kind of tied into the movie tonight. But unfortunately, I just think the tone is excru- excruciating is the word I'd use. I, mm. I think wow. this is a movie mm-hmm. I can't recommend to anyone. You know, like I, there's no one who I am a fan of that I would say, check it out. So Jeff Kanata, check it out. Okay, no. <laughs> 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 All right, but anyway, that's Big Bug. It's the new Jean-Pierre Genet movie. And it is, for all its faults, it is available on Netflix. You can check it out. And that is cool that you can see the new Jean-Pierre Genet that's movie cool. streaming right so now. So what's next? Stanford- if this was the last resort and it, you know, <laughs> what's next? I don't know, man. I don't know. I, don't know. I hope sad. he gets a chance to make another movie, though. So. I hear David, this was David. a pretty low-budget, like, COVID movie, too. Yes. So. Oh, That's yeah. Right. They, they can seems go. Like yeah. it. David, yep. out of curiosity, did you see his his previous film before this was all the way back in 2013, and I had not heard of it at all? I didn't know it existed, yeah. The young and prodigious T.S. Spivet. Did you did you watch no, that as a Genet fan? I have not seen it. I have not seen I'm it. Because I'm just, I'm like, I'm looking at his directorial credits and you talk about how his films are all wacky, but they really cover a, a wide variety of ground. We haven't mentioned a very long engagement at all. Love it. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. yeah, that is a, a sophisticated, layered, thoughtful movie that maybe feels like his The Straight Story in terms of it just being an anomaly in the middle of his career and yet a, a really wonderful one that doesn't in any way take away from the strength of the other movies that he did mm-hmm. in a completely different mode that, that do really well. But yeah. if you look at the the difference between City of Lost Children and A Very Long Engagement or the difference between Amelie and Micmacs, which is also just like a very light and maybe not very good farce, I, I I don't know that I would point to anything in his career and say, like, this is what his movies are like. They're just so all over the place. I think mm-hmm. that's fair. That's a fair point. Um, this one definitely is more on the Amelie side than it is on the, uh, the very uh, long engagement one. So If, if I had yeah. to pick an anomaly, I would think it would be Amelie. I think Amelie <laughs> is the anomaly. Wow. Don't you think? Wow. I don't want to use a homily, but... <laughs> Okay, that just doesn't make any sense. I know, it doesn't. It was fun. <laughs> All right, anyway, we got to move on. Uh, but that's Mi- uh, that's a Big Bug. It's available right now on Netflix. Hey, it's time for me to jump in here and tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. VPNs! You got to use them. I've been using NordVPN for a while now. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons to use a VPN. Cybersecurity is paramount among them. Protecting your connection, protecting your information, especially when you're traveling. Uh, I'm about to be doing a lot more traveling uh, for another job that I have. And you go to an airport, you're using an unsecure airport Wi-Fi, a secure encrypted tunnel that protects my data and my privacy is possible with NordVPN. I can also have NordVPN on up to six devices like my laptop, my phone, my TV, my iPad, even my router, so that all my devices are protected. And the cooler thing than that, I mean, cybersecurity is cool, but the cooler thing is that I can access content from over 59 different countries by changing my virtual location with one click with NordVPN. I live in the U.S., but with NordVPN, I could be anywhere in the world virtually and then access content from those regions locally. And it works the other way, too. If I'm outside the U.S., I can still have access to all my U.S. streaming services 
and I'll never miss my favorite show again. It's so cool. And if you're worried about a VPN slowing down your connection, fear not. NordVPN is the fastest VPN in the world. You don't have to sacrifice internet speed for security. So check it out. Go to nordvpn.com slash filmcast or use the code filmcast to get up to 70% off your NordVPN plan plus one additional month for free. It's completely risk-free with NordVPN's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com slash filmcast or the code filmcast, N-O-R-D-V-P-N.com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. Okay, uh, we got we actually were running real behind, so I got to fast-forward past some of this stuff. I will say I had a chance to check out Inventing Anna. Uh, which is also on Netflix. It's based off of this magazine article about Anna Delvey. And uh, this was another thing that I really did not care for. Mm. Um, th- this is basically, uh, I-, I guess one could describe it as like female catch me if you can. You know, this woman pretends to be a rich person and it manages to con her way into hundreds of thousands of dollars of free stuff from high society. Um, and I would say that the new- magazine article was awesome. Uh, but this would be like if you told Catch Me If You Can from the perspective of a journalist writing about Leonardo DiCaprio's adventures years later. <laughs> and he's like going and researching Leonardo DiCaprio's adventures, and it's like, oh, really? He did that? Oh, really? He did that? You know, and it's like, that's not as interesting as, you know, the thrill of the heist, the thrill mm-hmm, of fooling mm-hmm. people. And I think it completely misses what made this story interesting, and I found it to be extremely boring. Um, I would skip it. It's Inventing Anna on Netflix. It's the new Shondaland show. Uh, and finally, a quick shout out to uh, In the Mood for Love, which I had a chance to check out on Blu-ray on Valentine's Day. For the first time. For the first like, time. I saw that tweet. And I was like, yeah. wow. Yeah, Me incredible. too. Very, yeah. very embarrassing. But uh, I think it's more. Great. It's, it's worth waiting for a, a good Valentine's Day to see that movie. What an experience. And also, what, what was you? You were trying to get your wife to watch The Perfect Getaway? instead of so, in the mood for love so we the way you know we put on these um uh we went to my blu-ray shelf and we uh-huh. each got four movies and then we're like whittling them down to one movie and so i, I tweeted out this image and one of the movies i suggested was a, per- a perfect getaway because it's a fun uh-huh. little thriller it's, Drogue, it's, a fun, hey? it's a fun movie Do, does not scream valentine's day uh unlike uh, in the mood for love well i'll which, just say yeah. that i'm not the person who put don't look uh, don't look now on the table okay <laughs> anyway um but i mean that's uh, a very sexy movie so yeah in the mood for love is a movie that you keep hearing you know, every time i watch a Wong Kar Wai movie for the first time mm-hmm. i'm like this is incredible it's a masterpiece and also I'm shocked that I haven't seen anyone try to imitate what he is doing in this movie um, mm. because there is a storytelling device around uh, dresses that I'm just like this is incredible I've never seen anything like this before I, I think um, a lot but- of commercials after this movie like mm. advertising really tried to get the the vibe and the style and the music and the slow-mo like the the vibe of this movie has lived on in like luxury basically but in the mood for love i I can't get into it too much right now um but it's a stone cold masterpiece and i was shocked by how good you know there's some movies you hear about how good they are and you watch them and you're like that's pretty good but this is like wow that's it's just 
incredible. I'm glad you took this off your off your list. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, also controversial, and we can talk about this maybe during After Dark, but uh, the color grading on the Criterion Blu-ray very different than in the most recent uh, Wong Kar Wai collection. Hmm. Uh, apparently, like the new Wong Kar Wai collection changes the look of the film, uh, and uh, so yeah, this is a situation where double dipping on the Blu-ray might actually be advisable because it's, you're going to get basically two different versions of the film. But we watched the original Blu-ray Criterion and I would strongly suggest it because it looks incredible. That's In the Mood for Love. It's also available, I think, on either Criterion Channel or HBO Max or both. So highly recommended one car movie. Okay. Uh, we got too much stuff to get to, so I'll save some of this other stuff for later. Tasha Robinson, hit us up with a, a few things you've been uh, watching this week. Well, the one that I was kind of excited to talk about was uh, Book of Boba Fett, because I, I hear Devendra has thoughts. I also hear mm-hmm. that Jeff is uh, seasons behind. It hasn't even finished uh, The Mandalorian yet, um, which I... I confess we dropped off on the Mandalorian until we were most of the way through book of Boba Fett. And then I kind of mm. went, all right, well, I, I need like, to go back. Now, now you got to catch up. Yeah. I need to go back and fill that in. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't know if uh, Jeff's going to like stick his head in a hole while we talk about it or yeah, I'll take spoilers my ears out. or it's what. Like, talk freely. <laughs> Literally Speak his amongst ears yourselves. Yeah. Jeff has removable ears now because uh, spoilers. <laughs> they're everywhere. <laughs> well, it's a black so, mirror situation. We mm-hmm. we have to admit but, that. So you you're, you're going to try to avoid spoilers for Book of Boba Fett, but you did both watch the season finale of Book mm-hmm. of Boba Fett this this week. Um, Tasha, what do you think of it? I I mean I think we can talk about it in large terms without right, right. digging too much into the into the spoilers. But you know, as many people have observed. Uh, this is a seven episode season, uh, possibly series that hasn't been renewed yet, where two entire episodes just completely drop the main character, the title character, mm-hmm. in order to be a Mandalorian sequel. And, you know, continue the the adventures of characters who are admittedly probably a lot more popular and certainly <laughs> a lot more recently popular in ways that people definitely engaged with and found interesting. But I found the story of Boba Fett himself just kind of baffling, to be honest. I mm-hmm. I starting with that pilot in which he decides that he's going to be a crime lord in, on Tatooine and then proceeds to do a bunch of just really dumb stuff and nearly get himself killed. <laughs> but the episode never acknowledges that. Like there's mm-hmm. a thread running through the entire season that could be this is a story about a man who is is trying to find like legitimate a legitimate home for himself mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. a story about a man who's trying to to change his life and, and seize on something new and in the end he gets there you you could call it that but you never really know what he wants or whether we're supposed to take him seriously whether he's we're supposed to presume that he's good at what he does his choices vary so much from episode to episode his like competence level very so much episode <laughs> to episode i ended up coming out of this thinking is this show supposed to be a farce is it, this- is, it is kind of at one point it becomes like a, a really the book of boba fett is an rts game or something right <laughs> or a city builder like it's a city builder where you gotta join this clan gotta, gotta build up over here so this clan is invited and you get your resources going you get your productivity going like it, it's hilarious yeah but I don't understand any of the principles behind how he's playing the game. Right, right. I mean, just to, to throw out one example, uh, kind of late in the series, he decides it's it's really important that a group of drug smugglers not be allowed to deal in the drug spice, which is, uh, you know, unabashed. It's been around in the Star Wars uh, the universe for 
very long time, uh-huh. as many people have pointed it out. Dune was still uh, the, the first to the table on <laughs> spice is a mind altering drug that looks like dust. He decides it's very important that people not be able to deal spice. Well, never explains like, why. No spice on Tatooine. That's too close to Dune. We don't want to be. <laughs> we don't want to have any copyright infringement. Like, please get get that spice off my planet, yeah. Devendra. If he had said there is a conflict, a copyright conflict here, <laughs> it would have been so much more motive than what we actually get on the show. Oh, I man. I don't know why he decides that he doesn't like spice. He is an unrepentant murderer, but he doesn't <laughs> want people dealing drugs. You know, because reasons, which we're not going to explore. There are 100,000 possibilities for this show Mm -hmm. in terms of who he's meant to be, why he's doing what he's doing, what he fundamentally wants. And I don't think the show ever explores Mm -hmm. any of Mm -hmm. them or decides what any of them are. He's he's just a guy who walks around and action scenes happen around him. And, you know, I like Star Wars. I, I want to be in the middle of this milieu with all these, like, you know, wild aliens and, and strange technology and interesting clans and, and big conflicts. And here we're in the criminal underworld. It should be exciting. But I spent so much of this show just kind of saying to myself, OK, but uh, who is our character here? Right, Why right. do we care? Why are we engaged in any of his attempt to become a, a criminal <laughs> overlord in the underworld, I guess? It is. It's a weird thing, too. Like, so basically, I liken the show to a Saturday morning cartoon. Right. So the stakes of that, the logic of a cartoon it is very much that at times, like at one point there, there is like a speeder chase with these like 19, 1950s looking, looking things like looks like they, they came out of George Lucas's uh, scrapbook or something like his idea of a future speeder. Um, and it's just, it's just funny. Like there's just some really funny stuff, but I think at the end of the day, this thing is just uh, kind of poorly written. I really enjoyed it is the thing. Uh, but I also fully understand, like, I, I don't really know what they're going for with Boba Fett because he spends most of the show trying to be a good guy, right? The most uh, ruthless bounty hunter in the galaxy is now a good guy, you know, who is he doesn't want to kill the kid gang, you know, that's in his town. He wants to recruit them. He does. He's always trying to do the nice thing. Um, so I, I don't know if the show really fully, uh, fully gets there. Uh, I do like some of the things where they're like, um, he spent some time with the, uh, the sand people of, uh, of Tatooine. And that was a very, very much his like Lawrence of Arabia story. And I guess that's what they're going for. Like he, he is sort of reborn with community there because he was raised as a, you know, the, the one survivor of, uh, Django Fett and, uh, like Django Fett's actual son. It flashes back to, uh, scenes from uh, Attack of the Clones, which is also funny because it flashes back to the Coliseum scene where baby uh, baby Boba uh, baby Boba holds that bounty hunter helmet and uh, to his head. And in the background of the actual movie is just like tons of dead Jedi, tons of dead people in destruction. It is really funny. The clip that they show in this in this show is just like that is all removed. So I wonder if that's like <laughs> that that was purposeful. I wonder if that was like that really bums out the uh, the emotional core of what we're really going for here. Or is that like through his uh, his point of view where he didn't really recognize all that? I, I don't think they built up the character well um, as a show about Boba Fett. It kind of fails as sort of like an entry uh, midway point, you know, kind of getting us back to the Mandalorian or back to other stories that will be more fun. 
I think it's perfect, perfectly serviceable. And uh, those two episodes that don't deal with this at all, I think are really good is the thing. Like they're kind of baffling that all of a sudden you're back to the Mandalorian, but there's some really good stuff there that I think Star Wars fans will really appreciate. So I do hope Je- uh, Jeff gets to see that at some point. Tasha, I, I still can't tell if you liked this show or not. <laughs> Uh, I am more emotionally engaged in the show than makes any sense given yeah, the degree exactly. to which uh, I I did not like it. I I thought it was incompetent. I thought it was just like written on a, yeah, a completely yeah. incompetent uh, uh, level in a really frustrating way. I feel like I just engage with certain things really strongly when I can see the potential there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's so much richness in the idea of a, a guy who's never had a home finding a home and then destroying it through his own hubris, a guy reaching out for a, a kind of a place that he can call his own, but he doesn't really know how to secure it because he doesn't understand the the politics of the place that he's landed in and he is too arrogant to explore them or or live up to them but yet he still kind of like fumbles forward and he causes chaos without meaning to all of these things are kind of latent in the story and i i kept waiting for some sense that that anybody involved understood like just how rich this character <laughs> or this setting is and how just kind of having your your main character stand in the middle of it stone faced and then proclaim we're going to go do this now like it's not interesting I don't know. There's a, a Having moment said that you still recommend it. Yeah. I, I <laughs> definitely Morrison no. is very compelling is the thing. Like he is very compelling as he is spouting nothing. So I, I cannot recommend it. I cannot yeah. <laughs> recommend it except as a, a study in lost potential. Mm. But on the other hand, if you love the Mandalorian, you're, you're going to have to tune into episodes five and six because some yeah. really important things happen for that some, character. Some good stuff. Also, if you, if you like uh, the laser guns that go pew, you know, like there's a lot of pew pew. If you love Ming Na Wen, and there there is some decent Ming Na Wen, she doesn't her her character doesn't get get much of a chance to shine except like one revelation about her. Um, but I wish we spent more time with her. But just like in Agents of Shield, she gets a lot of uh, room to kick butt, and I do like that. If you like watching Wookies throw people, this is the show yes! for you. There, there's a badass Wookie. It's cool, cool guy. All right, well that's the Book of Boba Fett. It's streaming right now on Disney Plus. Tasha, you also had a chance to check out JLo's new movie, Marry Me, which is streaming <laughs> I really need right to now see that. on yeah. It's streaming right now on Peacock Do and you? it's also available in theaters. It made eight million dollars this weekend. Uh, yeah. what did you think of Marry Me? It's uh even for a rom-com, which tend to be very programmatic and, and artificial, you know, because they're, they're comfort food. They're kind of the epitome of comfort food. This movie is extremely artificial and rigid and straight-laced. <laughs> it is giving you exactly what it thinks that you want. And I can't fault it for that. Uh, I, I think that Jennifer Lopez is just kind of incandescently charismatic and really enjoyable to watch. And there's a lot of her performing in this movie because it's presented as it's, it's an update on Notting Hill, the 1999 Richard Curtis written movie where ordin- ordinary schmo, uh, skeptical question mark, Hugh Grant uh, meets superstar uh, movie star, Julia Roberts, and they start dating and it's weirder for him because she's famous. So here it's Owen Wilson uh, dating Jennifer Lopez, who is super famous. And he kind of gets accidentally pulled into her world when she pulls him up on stage and marries him on a whim because she's mad at her boyfriend. 
So like the thing about rom-coms is if you watch a, a trailer for a rom-com, you've seen the rom-com. There are <laughs> virtually no surprises here. Uh, and a, a lot of the action is just kind of like, well, it's a rom-com. We need a reason for them to be sad with each other and to break up for a little while here. We don't really care what it is. We'll, we'll just kind of throw something out. Sure, that'll work. Uh, we need a, a cute scene where the two of them do fun things together. Let's throw a dartboard at, like, what's a fun date? But it's still, you know, these are charismatic people, and it's it's very warming. And I had the uh, occasion to edit a piece recently for Polygon about, like, the appeal of romance movies as stories where you know everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. stories that can often kind of privilege the the female perspective and think about women's desires uh and respect them respect what they want this is a movie that respects both male and female desires i think to some degree and it it's just kind of a big hunk of comfort the food that that gives you what you want i would not recommend the people who don't like rom-coms watch this movie <laughs> i would not recommend the people who don't like jennifer lopez watch this movie uh, but I don't know. I just I see so many people these days essentially saying I I'm so stressed out. I'm so tired. Everything on the news is terrible. There's too much social media. Uh, I just I just want something to relax with. This movie is the equivalent of a warm cup of tea. That's great. That's great. My wife is uh, one of the the huge Jennifer Lopez fans, so I, I will end up watching this movie at some point. I do have to think, like, maybe at some point we'll have more comfort food than, like, true crime documentaries, you know? Like, bring us <laughs> back to the old days. That'd be great. That'd be yeah. great. Yeah, it seems like an insurmountable mountain to, to overcome, though. I don't know how <laughs> we get to that point. Mm, indeed. Um, well, that's Marry Me. It's streaming right now on Peacock, and you can watch it in theaters. And it's something else that Tasha Robinson's been watching. Hey folks, this episode of the Filmcast is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every single day, Mubi premieres a new film from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere, just perusing Mubi. Right now, a bunch of movies jumped out at me, including just perusing movie. I see so many cool things. Chuck and Buck is a movie I enjoyed for back in the year 2000. Uh, there are different headings. There's new voices in Georgian cinema. Look at that. Where are you going to find cinema from Georgia anywhere else? Hand-picked, hand-selected documentaries like The Grizzly Man. Man, I, I'll never unsee that movie. That is an experience uh los angeles plays itself fascinating documentary so much stuff on mubi and you can try mubi for free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmcast that's m-u-b-i dot com slash filmcast for a whole month of great cinema for free we're talking timeless classics award-winning masterpieces Festival fresh gems. The best of cinema at your fingertips. Streaming anytime, anywhere. You can discover hundreds of great films. This is the perfect sponsor for this show. This is the thing I made for cinephiles like you. I know. I know you're listening to this. You're a cinephile. Try it. Movie.com slash filmcast. A month free. Devinger Hardware. Uh, what are you watching this week? 
So, you know, I am uh, low on my stories about rich New Yorkers and uh, high society New York. So I started The Gilded Age, which is the new Julian Fellows show, basically Downton Abbey in like, uh, you know, uh, early New York, a time where uh, Central Park was still a sheep meadow, you know. So there this is a show that's mainly about uh, old money. And Old Money starring actors I love, like Christine, uh, Christine Baranski and Cynthia Nixon, and uh, New Money. Is it, uh, it's not and- Downton Abbey, it's Downtown Abbey. <laughs> I mean... Right? Because of New York? Right? Okay. No? Okay. Jeff, yeah. you're just, yeah. you're you're just killing it. Hopping I can off hear those, the suffering. Barbs tonight, See, the man. the yeah. thing about me, guys, is I don't say anything unless... You have something to contribute, <laughs> something of value, yeah. something insightful, something insightful. Um, new money, a uh, new money, by the way, embodying this show by Carrie Coon. And I'm mentioning this because this is essentially a show that is a constant face off between Christine Baranski and Carrie Coon. And uh, when I say all those words, I think to certain TV watchers that means something. And that's why I'm mentioning it. It is a, uh, it's a fun story about two people, you know, uh, two families who own uh, very fancy mansions uh, uh, right next to Central Park on the Upper East Side. Um, one is like uh, the old money, old townhouse type thing. The new money thing is this gigantic museum-sized building that everybody's gawking at. Um, it's a story about society in that time. Um, and I just think it's it, it's a fun way to see these like very rich people snipe at each other. Not in the... Uh, it's funny in many ways like it's not like a succession level thing um but i think it's like a fun watch in the in the sort of like historical story that uh downton abbey was doing Uh, i don't think it's trying to be too realistic is the thing i think the uh the way they recreate old new york never looks good unfortunately like there there's a lot of cg work there's a lot of like false background stuff going on here uh just to make it look uh somewhat like like it did back in the time that stuff kind of takes me away from it, but I think the human drama is really good. And if you like the Julian fellows playbook, you know, I, I watched Downton Abbey for like a full two seasons um, before I gave up. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of that. It's a lot of that. And I think the characters are fun. The Ringing endorsement. Fun. If you like the Julian fellows playbook and I did for two seasons before completely I mean, discarding it, you know, Gosford if, Park. if you haven't yet gotten Park to thing. that point of exhaustion and hatred for Julian Fellows, here you go. Uh, here you go. It's, yeah. It is very much the same thing. But hey, Gosford Park, like I, I think back to like the the pure genius of that movie. Um, there are there are still good things he's exploring here, especially the way like, you know, rich high society New York is dealing with uh, people of different classes and different races. And I think those uh, those encounters are really interesting. So, yeah. Basically, if you're a Downton Abbey fan, I think like you're a hook for this. If you're a fan of Christine Baranski and or Carrie Coon, I also think it's it's worth watching because they're in fabulous dresses. They get to flaunt uh, really expensive things and just be like really cool high society people. So I enjoy watching that. This is my comfort food, you know. All right. That's The Gilded Age, and it's streaming right now on HBO Max. And Devendra's a fan. Uh, Devinger, I think you wanted to give a quick shout out to this uh, podcast, right? Yeah, quick shout out to the Trojan Horse Affair, which is the latest podcast from the Serial Crew. Um, th- this thing 
I, I did not expect to like get roped into a serial like uh podcast, but uh, this thing just launched. Um, I believe all the episodes are out, or at least a big chunk of them. It's hosted by Hamza Syed and Brian Reed, where they um they explore what happens when this like anonymous letter appeared in Birmingham, England, that basically uh said that there there is like an elaborate Islamist extremist plot happening in their public schools, and it dives into so the the actual real world effect of that it was huge. Like it, it led to people losing work uh there there was like a nationwide panic about what was happening in public schools because uh there's a lot of islamophobia going on and uh this podcast is diving deeper into that because nobody ever asked who wrote this letter was this thing even real like why is any of this happening i think it's a really compellingly told and well-made story and uh it's a good show so if you if you dug the serial thing uh i think this one is definitely worth a worth a listen that's the Trojan Horse Affair podcast. It's available wherever podcasts can be downloaded. That's what Devinder Hardar has been watching. Jeff Kanata, what have you been watching? Well, I um, I checked out something actually based on your recommendation, Dave, because I hadn't even heard that this was out. But uh, Showtime uh, is doing or has done a uh, a program, a docu series uh, called "We Need to Talk About Cosby." Uh, this is from. Um, producer, director, creator, uh, W. Camus Bell, who I think very highly of. And, uh, you know, we, we joked uh, earlier about uh, Ivan Reitman, and I, I talked about sort of the influence of his movies on my life. I don't think there is any singular figure. I don't know, maybe Isaac Asimov or Stephen King or George Lucas would be up there. But there, I don't think there's any singular figure that is more uh, artistically influential in my upbringing than Bill Cosby. And that is not because of the Cosby show. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what age I was, uh, maybe seven or eight, uh, when my dad handed me a stack of albums, vinyl albums that he owned in the 60s uh, that were the entire catalog of Bill Cosby's stand-up comedy. And I had a record player in my room. This is how old I am. I, I had a record player in my room. <laughs> and I listened to those albums so many times that I memorized the routines. And the thing that was amazing about those albums, uh, apart from a few notable exceptions, <laughs> like Spanish Fly and, and a couple of others, uh, they're almost all completely family-friendly but hilarious. It's just Bill Cosby telling stories about his childhood. Um, the, you know, only albums to bro my brother Russell, whom I slept with, and uh, why is there air? And I mean, the, all of these albums, and Noah, you know, the, they're all to a whatever age I was then, seven, eight, whatever it was, the most brilliant, funny, wonderful, I mean, one of them is called Wonderfulness, um, just captivating stand-up comedy things, it absolutely, I think, made me love stand-up comedy, made me love performance, made me love storytelling. Uh, it, it, it is so hugely responsible for the kind of sensibility that I have artistically um, that it has, you know, that the revelations about who Cosby is and was uh, hit me very, very hard uh, because it was a big, I mean, it, I dreamed, I dreamed 
about handing those same albums to my kids and enjoying them uh, with a new generation because I knew that even though some of the references are dated, they would have been universally appreciated. They are the kinds of stories, uh, you know, revenge is a, is a story about him like getting hit with a snowball and then holding on to that snowball, putting it in the freezer and waiting until summer that he could hit another kid with it. It's like, it's perfect for kids. And it, it you know, the, I, I, I still quote them despite myself, even though knowing that Cosby was a monster. And the thing that's so interesting, I think about this Showtime series, we need to talk about Cosby, is that it acknowledges all of those sides of who he was. Um, w. Camus Bell does a spectacular job, I think, of outlining what it was about Cosby that was so revolutionary, important, culturally significant, um, you know, his work for the civil rights movement. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure if anyone listening to this knows Cosby, it probably is because he became America's dad or sort of the, this, this, uh, arbitrator of values that he appointed himself as in late in life. Um, and, and, and the Cosby show was such a huge touchstone culturally that it's hard to even, uh, contextualize him beyond that. But this show does such a good job of explaining who he was when he started, which was the coolest black dude on television. Also the only black dude on television. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I spy was a massive revolutionary television program. And he was like the coolest guy. I mean, he was not a dad a figure at all at, at that time. And his stand-up comedy was so massively successful before the Cosby show, which was like a whole other level of superstardom and cultural impact and like literally saved a network. I mean, but the guy did tons of civil rights work. There's archival footage in this documentary series um, showing him actively speaking out on, on issues in a very serious way, not in the kind of Bill Cosby that we always think, like completely like staring down the barrel of the camera, talking from the heart. I mean, it, he, he was, his career spanned, you know, five decades. It's, it's a complex and interesting story. And I think the definitive Bill Cosby documentary, uh, you know, biography really, and at no point with all of that does W. Camus Bell allow you to forget the other side, the dark side, the absolutely heinous things that he did and, and evidently was doing throughout that period. Yeah. Uh, that it's not a, you know not a recent occurrence, not a not a short period of time in his life where he was, you know, doing t terrible things, raping women. Um, that it was a sustained and consistent pattern of behavior, and yeah. being forced to hear the details of that throughout this series. There's no point at which he gets too far away, or Bell, that is uh, the filmmaker, gets too far away from allowing you to, reminding you that that's this undercurrent. And so in that sense, it's a very difficult thing to watch as well because 
I'm so conflict. I mean, I'm not, there's no conflict, but I'm so depressed that this man who did so much good that is undeniable and was so important in so many ways to me personally, but also to our world, <laughs> um, had this monster inside him that was constant, that was covered up by others. It, it is, it's a complex and interesting uh, analysis of that. And it very, uh, if you don't know much about Bill Cosby, I think it, it probably would be uh, eye-opening in a lot of respects. You know, I, as much as I paid attention to the uh, the trial and the accusations and all of the information that came out, there's a lot of detail here that is truly repugnant and hard to hear, but I had not heard. And you go, oh my God, I thought I knew the extent to which this man destroyed lives, but there's so much more that I wasn't aware of. Um, and so, it, you know, it, I, I find it to be a deeply fascinating, deeply disturbing, uh, but ult ultimately enlightening and, and I think essential work. Uh, and it's told in a really interesting way. I mean, the title of the piece is We Need to Talk About Cosby. And it really does feel like this conversation. Uh, Bell brings in a, a wide range of people, uh, both you know famous and less famous, uh, notable in, in a variety of ways, scholars and and historians and, and all kinds of folks. And, and most of the movie, I mean, very little of the movie is told through Bill Cosby's own words, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's people talking about him and what he meant to the world and what he did and what horrible things he did. Um, and so it is very much this reckoning, this, this, as I have gone through in my own life because of my fandom, you know, my true fandom for him. I was a massive Bill Cosby fan. Um, you know, that reckoning of like, how can this person that I looked up to so much and just held in such high regard have been such a, a terrible, terrible human. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really what it's about. It's about reckoning with that. It's about laying out all the sides of that, of that multifaceted truth and, um, having to reckon with it. And uh, I found it to be a, a really essential work. Well, you know, the other part of the title that I thought you were uh, going to mention as well, Jeff, is, you know, you, you were referring to the talk about Cosby, but the other part that really struck me was the we need to. Yeah. And I think that yeah. this mm -hmm. documentary comes out of, it, it feels like the director, W. Kamu Bell, had to make it. Like, I read his article in Time Magazine. He wrote about making it. And I'll just quote from it here. He says, quote, I started working on the docuseries in 2019. I reached out to the comedians I knew had a stake in the conversation. That list is pretty much every comedian I knew and maybe even every comedian, period. I quickly found out that I was among the few who wanted to have the Bill Cosby conversation. Very few of the people who worked with him wanted to talk either. And of course, since this is about Bill Cosby, many of those people who didn't want to talk are black. This is a third rail conversation for black folks. Whether you believe the woman, whether you think Cosby is or ever was a hero, there are too many landmines. This is combined with the fact that no matter what you think about Cosby, black folks in the U.S. are always living under a deficit of role models representation. 
Consider all that alongside the fact that America has a well-earned reputation for criminalizing and killing innocent black men. There is no perceived gain in taking a black man down. And then I'm skipping forward here. He says, quote, this docuseries feels like it could be the end of my career. Many times while making it, I hoped it would just go away, get canceled or permanently shelved. It had certainly happened to other Bill Cosby documentaries, but then every time I would have that thought, I would think about the women who have alleged harrowing encounters with Cosby and their bravery when they talked to me for this project. These are women who have gone through the ringer since they came forward. Lily Bernard, who claims uh, Cosby drugged her and raped her during the time she appeared on The Cosby Show, says there has been constant blaming and shaming. Most of these women have learned to distrust the media as a whole, but they trusted me with their stories. I couldn't leave them on the shelf, even if my career is in the balance. We have to be able to at least have the conversation. So much more is at stake, end quote. I was just really struck by that passage and this idea that like he felt like he had to make it. You know, like right, right. this is not a thing that you make because you want to make it. This is a thing you make yeah. because you feel like you cannot proceed in life until you have this conversation because of all of the kind of conflicts that you said, plus the race issue, you know, Jeff, which is not something that's present with you, but like obviously is with the filmmaker. Sure. You know? And so I think that uh, I was fascinated by that, but I think you've done an, a, a great job summarizing it, Jeff. So did you um, watch it? I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is very powerful. And I, I think um, it's it's a really challenging topic. And th- there are many people who have issues with the way it was approached here. And I think, you know, they're all valid. They should all be heard. But at the end of the day, the documentary gives a another venue for victims to have their stories told. And I think that's always inherently valuable. So it's we need to talk about Cosby. Uh, you, I think you did a great job summarizing it, Jeff. So thank you for sharing that with us. And um, it's streaming right now on Showtime. It's a four-part documentary. Um, and if that's something you want to learn more about, then uh, We Need to Talk About Cosby is an option for you. That is what we have been watching this week. Ladies and gentlemen, let me jump into your podcast for just one moment and tell you about HelloFresh. It's our sponsor. It is something I use every week. It is something that has improved the life of my family. What? What? What is HelloFresh? Well, with HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. I'm telling you, it helps my life. (laughs) I can make food for my family, fresh food with fresh ingredients. I know what's in it, and I enjoy the cooking. The pre-portioned ingredients that are delivered right to your door include farm-fresh produce that arrives within a week, so you get convenience without skimping on the quality. You don't have to go to the grocery store. Gotta admit, I'm not a fan of going to the grocery store. You get those long lines, and you're always buying more than you need if you're buying specifically for one recipe. No, pre-portioned, you get exactly what you need. You don't waste money on excess food. And HelloFresh has fit and wholesome recipes for satisfying and nutritious meals that you can feel good about. With six recipes per week to choose from, including low-calorie and carb-conscious options. And these aren't super labor-intensive. You don't have to spend a ton of time in the kitchen. They have meals ready in about 30 minutes or less. Plus, they have quick and easy meals, including their 20-minute recipes and low prep and easy cleanup options. They provide an even faster route to putting food on the table. I love the amount of options I have every single week. I've been using HelloFresh 
for like five years now, maybe. It, it, seriously, I've been that long of a subscriber. I subscribe every single week and you can too. Go to hellofresh.com slash filmcast16 and use our code filmcast16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's hellofresh.com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T-1-6. And the promo code F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T-1-6 for 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. All right, folks, let's get to weekly plugs. We're going to do weekly plugs. gotten some requests in the slack film cast about uh playing the longer version of the weekly plugs bumper so i'm happy to oblige but uh weekly plugs the part of the show where we plug something else we've been making that's not the film cast tasha robinson you want to give us something else you've been making sure i'm the co-host of the next picture show podcast uh <laughs> I I feel like what I really should be plugging is uh so the the construction of the podcast is we take a current film and we look back on a film that maybe influenced it maybe the filmmaker cited it maybe it's just a an earlier version of the same story maybe it's uh, made by the same director at a much earlier point in their career. Uh, in some way, a film that has a lot to say uh, that the two films work in conversation with each other. And I, I mean to talk about the current pairing, but I will say that the the previous pairing, which was Joel Cohen's Tragedy of Macbeth and uh, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, had a very special guest on it, uh, one David Chen, who... <laughs> Ooh. I get, I get what? it now. I get what the wooing is for. Yeah. He, uh, he did, in fact, spend a, a great deal of his time on the podcast, uh, praising us and talking up our Patreon, and uh, also making dick jokes, which was tremendous <laughs> as far as I was concerned. We we can get a little self serious, and I, I loved how lively and uh, and humorous that that particular parent and was. sycophantic. Yeah. And sycophantic, very, very important. We have decided to only bring on sycophantic guests. Well, that from makes now on. two of us on this podcast, Tasha. Anyway, <laughs> can I just can I just praise this podcast? Can I just let everybody know what a cool guy David Chen is, and how much I admire him and his hundred and fifty seven thousand projects at any given time, and how he clearly either has a time turner or is just way better at, at time management than I am. I <laughs> mm. mm. uh, our current pairing. We I talked a little bit about Mary Me. We brought that podcast into conversation with uh, 1999's Notting Hill, um, written by Richard Curtis. Uh, just a, a very interesting film in the connection both with, I guess, Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts' careers in terms of where they were at the time. And just the kind of the the development of fame, how fame has changed between 1999 and now, I think is a, a very interesting question between these two films. Um, but both of them essentially about an, an ordinary man, quote unquote, obviously played by a major movie star uh, who ends up in a relationship with a extremely famous woman. And so you end up with all of these interesting dynamics around power, around who's in charge, who who has say, around 
whether it's possible to love somebody when you also have an image of them that is kind of a, a false media image, whether it's possible to connect and get around that image, what kind of responsibility people have to their own fame or their own careers as, as famous people. These are both very interesting films. But uh, as sort of a side plug, I would like to mention that a we had a, a guest on that one as well, a perfectly crimulent guest even though he was not a noted <laughs> podcaster david chen mm-hmm. um scott meslow is the author of a new book on rom-coms called from hollywood with love the rise and fall and rise again of the romantic comedy and he they sent us copies of this book to prep for the podcast and i ended up reading the sections on uh hugh grant and jennifer lopez and uh richard curtis and uh, just a, a bunch of rom-coms in general it's a very light book. It's very approachable. It's it's very breezy reading, much like the films that inspired it. Uh, but I learned a lot about kind of the history of these different creators uh, in conjunction with their, their rom-com histories, particularly about uh, J-Lo and race, her obsession with rom-coms, her desire to star in rom-coms, and the degree to which she was not able to earlier in her career because people would look at her and say things like oh yeah she's pretty but she's just too what the word what's the word we're looking for tough she's too tough uh to to be a vulnerable rom-com heron or whatever the excuse they would use that always just seemed like thinly coated racism so there's a lot to learn in the over the course of this book just about how how rom-coms are structured how they've changed over time uh how the creators came to this particular genre what they put into it what they get out of it um i recommend it as a book it's just a a lot of fun and very very popcorny reading uh went on sale the first of february the icon that he has on his Twitter account of the book it literally has popcorn raining down uh, upon it, which I think is maybe just a commentary on the fact that it's a book about movies, but also just really kind of describes the the, the breezy tone of it and how accessible and how much fun it is. So uh, yeah, the next Petra Show podcast uh, talk very very seriously about movies, except when David <laughs> shows up, in which case we have a lot more fun uh (laughs) in this case we talk very seriously about rom-coms and from hollywood with love by uh, scott meslow uh yeah from hollywood with love is the name of the book all right uh other weekly plugs on culturally relevant podcasts i had a chance to chat with ryan broderick a writer whose work i really appreciate uh, about the joe rogan situation and what's going on with joe rogan over at spotify and the implications of all the terrible decisions they're making over there so if you want to hear that, uh, check it out on the Culturally Relevant podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com and wherever you download your podcasts. Devin, your hardware, your weekly plug. Oh, I wrote up a quick uh, budget home theater guide over at Engadget, so just check that out. I, I saw hear this. A lot of... Pretty cool. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm building out a system myself, so I was really uh, keen to check this one out. Yeah, yeah, it's very basic, but I think uh, it'll answer the questions of like if you just have TV speakers or you have a crappy sound bar, like where do you go from there? Um, the soundbar systems could be pretty good, but, uh, I I like me some speakers. So if you don't mind, uh, wires in your room, um, those are always great. And I have some good suggestions there. All righty. And Jeff Kanata. I do a video game podcast called DLC. You can find it at five by five dot TV slash DLC. And, uh, that five by five part, um, turns out it went away. Uh, we've been part of a 
a podcasting network called Five by Five for eight years. The show has been going, uh, we are in our ninth year right now. So over eight years. Um, and uh, it uh, we got a notice that the, no more, no more of that. So the show uh, has launched a Patreon. Uh, and if uh, you haven't tried it out, I would urge you to give it a shot. Uh, it's a it's a show I'm very proud of. We have a new guest every single week, and have done for uh, over over eight years, literally eight years of content, and we have never missed a week of new content. Never once in eight years plus have we uh, have we not had a new episode uh, every single week, uh, and it's always been free, and it's still free. But uh, in order to keep going. Um, we need the support of people like you if you listen to the show. So I'm getting the word out using this show, uh, patreon.com slash DLC pod. And yes, I used the pod, even though I hate it. I used it. I used pod. Was was podcast taken or did you just not want to be that long? Well, I just didn't want to be that long. And uh, we got dlcpod.com and dlcpodcast.com mm, was yeah. taken. So yeah. in order to have the synergy between you gotta have, both. Yeah. 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 So, unlike us, patreon.com slash film podcast. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like this whole time you've just been listing differentiators between this and the film cast, uh, Jeff. Mm, you know, mm, mm. Uh, every week, new episode, new guest yeah. every week, you know, <laughs> yeah. just yeah. kind of like differentiating it. So, yeah. 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 It's yeah. Uh, good. Good stuff. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good show. Yeah. Anyway, anyway ch- check it out. Uh, we've got cool tiers. I think you'll dig it. I mean, I basically modeled it after this show's Patreon. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, you know, I, I just want the show to continue and, and I hope we can because it was a it was a pretty big surprise when we found out that we were no longer going to be on the podcast network. So um, anyway, there it is. Uh, Patreon.com slash DLC pod is where you can find that Patreon and be sure to support it if you want to support Jeff's DLC podcast. If you want to support this podcast, very easy to do that by going to patreon.com slash film podcast. We've got a Scream retrospective for you this month with some cool guests culminating in our review of Scream 5 early March. And uh, if you don't want to support us with money, you know, you you want to support us, but you're like, I don't have any money uh, or I can't financially support you. That's 100% fine. We never want you to support us if it is in any way a financial hardship. But there is a way to support us. Otherwise, you can go to Apple Podcasts or to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a star rating for the show. Just takes a few seconds and it makes a big difference. Um, so that's it. Patreon.com slash film podcast. Of course, you can also recommend things for us to watch at hashtag slash tag on the Twitters. All right, folks, let's get to our review of Steven Stoderberg's new film, Kimmy. Kimmy? I'm here. What time is it? It's 7.26 a.m. Kimmy? I'm here. Call oh. Dr. Burns. I got her. What do you want from me? Kimmy? I'm here. Why don't you run from me? Call Darius. Hey, hotness! Wow. What are you wondering? Why do you know? Kimmy? I'm here. Reopen last stream on desktop. I need more kitchen paper. Open yesterday's stream. That was from the trailer for Kimmy, the new film by Steven Soderbergh. It's streaming right now on HBO Max. 
I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. An agoraphobic Seattle tech worker uncovers evidence of a crime. This movie is written by David Kep. David Kep, legendary yeah. screenwriter. Kep, uh, still still at it. Yeah, man. Yeah. He um, keeps on keeping on. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff. Extremely boo. Tasha Robinson, <laughs> what did you think about Kimmy? I'm sorry. I'm I'm too caught up in what I think about that particular pun. <laughs> Uh, I'm very much of two minds about this film. Um, one of those minds is the, uh, I guess, you know, turn your brain off and watch the movie uh, part of me, which mm-hmm. maybe should get more priority. And, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. And the other part is the film critic part. The film critic viewer of this movie was pretty dissatisfied with it simply because it echoes so many other movies without, I felt, bringing a whole lot new to the table. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. effectively a tech update of Hitchcock's rear window. It's kind of filtered through Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. There's a fair bit of uh, DNA of of blowout in here. I would say there's actually also a lot of similarity with um, Run Lola Run comes to mind. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. There's just there's a ton of touchstones here. And there's nothing, and and I guess we should also mention, uh, Kep is the screenwriter of Panic Room, which there's there's some Panic Room elements in here as well. So all of these things and and other maybe movies to a lesser degree kind of filter in mm-hmm. to a movie that is basically ninety minutes long, uh, just just no fat on it, charges ahead at at every single moment. And I kept thinking, you know, okay, you're you're borrowing from so many greats, but what are you adding here? Like, what's what's mm. the additive property? So the film critic part of my brain uh, basically just kept looking for the new in this, and because it's so slick and small, and there's so little to it, there isn't a whole lot new. If I had never seen a film before, I would probably think this was the, the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> maybe wow. maybe I should say. Maybe I should say if I had never seen any of the movies that I just cited, right? Uh, right. I would think this was mm, the greatest yeah. movie of all time. That's well, that's a, a little less. Concept. People, if I was living in, just, in Plato's cave, are you guys familiar had, with the, the meme? Um, getting a lot of Boss Baby vibes from this, you know, says <laughs> yes. the person who's only seen Boss Baby before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Guy who has only seen Boss Baby, watching his second movie, getting a lot of Boss Baby vibes <laughs> from this. Anyway. So yes, if you hadn't seen those movies, you'd say this is amazing. But the part of because me that's you've seen never, them, yeah. never seen a movie before really thinks this technology is going to catch on. I uh, <laughs> would like to know how I can invest. Yes. Maybe, I was maybe I could send by the moving images on my on my wall. <laughs> I was really sure that this uh, like claustrophobic lady with the, the brightly dyed hair was going to come out of the screen at me at any moment. <laughs> Thank that God nobody's thing about the, the train, the, the first ring. train. Lumiere brothers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway, so that's that's the uh, that's the sort of intellectual side of my response to this movie. The m- much more like emotional from the gut side says uh, this is just a really fun time. You know, it's it is sleek, it is propulsive, it it steals so many great ideas from great movies uh, that it is itself full of great ideas. <sighs> I really enjoyed Zoe Kravitz's performance in the the lead role as uh, the the tech agoraphobe. I enjoy what she's trying to do, and I really especially enjoyed the physicality with which she does it. Just the, the physical language of her on screen. 
uh, I think is really telling and engaging and and interesting. I mean, um, the way she tries to dry her hands after applying Purell to them is a, mm-hmm. is a pretty yeah, incredible motion. Yeah. Yeah. Just a sort of uh, yeah. like little up and down, uh, spread apart hand gesture that that kind of looks like she's shaking water off her hands, something like that. It, yeah. it feels very specific. Um, a lot of other aspects of uh, this movie feel very specific. I. Uh, Dang it, I don't have the um, composer's name in front of me, but... Cliff Martinez, I believe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cliff Martinez. How could I forget? Cliff Martinez's score is, it's so propulsive, it's so intense, it's so in the moment. Um, The camera work by Steven Soderbergh, uh, particularly just kind of elements of where the camera is placed and how it tells the story, depending on what the main character is, is doing and what she's feeling, is really telling. Like, there's a ton of craft that went into this movie and and I really appreciate it for all of those, those reasons. There was nothing here that tripped me up in terms of well, that, that motivation doesn't make sense or, okay, but how would she re- reach that conclusion or mm-hmm. why is somebody doing what they're doing? Everything on screen is calculated uh, to, with a specificity that I think is, is really admirable. Um, and I enjoyed the experience of watching the movie. I just found it very hard to get out of my, my head the, the feeling of having seen every single element of this movie before someplace else. It's a fair call. It's a fair call. Devendra Hardor, curious what you thought about Kimmy. Yeah, you know, um, I basically had the same thoughts you did, uh, Tasha, but they were kind of flipped for me. I think for me, it was more like, man, this movie is a blast. I love everything about this movie. Damn, it's a shame that it, it is like not a major update of of any of those things. Like, uh, kids, if you have not seen the conversation, um, go check that out. Because uh, mm. I, I, I know a lot of people have seen Rear Window, but I think the conversation and Blowout are the ones that are more like, you've probably heard about it. You probably heard film nerds talk about it. It is uh, maybe not essential cinema, like somebody would classify River Window as, but I love those movies. Yeah, and this, it's basically yeah. like somebody's doing their job yep. and then they discover a crime has occurred. And, and their job involves yeah. recording, you right. know, or, yeah. yeah, and then they or listening to recordings or listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the through like technical skill, they discern what is happening through that, uh, through those recordings too. And I, I love, um, like, I love so many little bits of this movie. Like, first of all, uh, the apartment that we spend so much time in it is perfect. Like talk about your dream millennial work from home apartment, uh, industrial factory thing. Like I, I just love being in that space. Uh, I love the specificity of like the things, uh, uh, Zoe Kravitz character was using, um, just like her whole work setup. Like it all, as somebody is a, who is a tech guy and who spends a lot of time, um, you know, touching and thinking and, and about these types of devices, everything they kind of showed is very real. And I appreciate that in the movie. So like there, there's a point where, you know, she, she busts out some old gear to really take a listen to this audio file. I find that to be really cool. Um, it is also probably a great time to have a remake of Rear Window. You know, if you're going to do it, do it at the point where we're living through a goddamn pandemic. And a lot of us, um, you know, have spent uh, a, a long while staring at our neighbor, neighbors through windows. So yeah, you don't have to also- break your leg to not be able to go out. These days. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, it's just, it's just living now, but it really reminded me of, uh, of, when I was in Brooklyn and when we were just kind of stuck and 
I, I saw some people through my window, like uh, the, the people walking down the street, I would occasionally like talk to uh, because that's the only way you could really interact with people. So that whole thing, uh, plus the sort of like, oh, this is also about a smart speaker, which is it's a weird thing. Like it's a weird piece of technology. I know Black Mirror has kind of covered some of this as well, but it covers things that I'm always thinking about too. Like the fact that, uh, you know, we, we, we are inviting surveillance devices into our homes and, uh, these companies say are, we're fully anonymous, uh, users, but, uh, there were instances already proven where that, that that's not necessarily the case, um, where companies may have access to all the little things you say to them too. Um, I have Amazon Alexa devices, uh, but I'm also somebody who, you know, I do think and write about privacy too. So it's like, I have to juggle those thoughts in my mind. Uh, But setting a movie around something essentially recorded by one of those devices, I think is really fantastic. And also, you know, somebody has to go out there and clean up all the audio cues we're, we're making. Um, They're really interesting ideas here. And then by the point where, it is very much uh, run, Lola, run, like you're saying, Tasha. Like I, I think, like I was gripping my uh, my armrests a bit because the camera's always moving, uh, characters are always moving. There, there are great foot chases throughout. Like this, this movie reminded me how much I miss a good foot chase. You know, just somebody, somebody really <laughs> trying to get to someone else, and uh, the obstacles that get in the way. There's some really fun stuff we could talk about in spoilers, but it's just like really fun and creative. And I had a really good time with it. I think my main thing is I was worried that uh, I was kind of like losing sync with Soderbergh um, with his streaming movies, you know, like you guys really like no sudden move. And that is a movie where I was like, I I really wish this was a little fresher or newer or just more interesting. Um, I never saw let them all talk or the laundromat, but high flying bird is also a movie where I know a lot of critics who love that movie and I found that thing just absolutely inscrutable uh, to to comprehend even. Um, So I, I I like that he's trying different things and I'm glad that, you know, he has like a nice lean thing that I can just enjoy without uh, fretting about. So I love this movie. Jeff Kanata thoughts on Kimmy. Well, Dave, I guess you could say my thoughts on Kimmy are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. From the moment that you begin it, I predict I predict you will be drawn in it. Soderbergh proves that when your plot moves, you don't need to be more than ninety minutes. Nice. <laughs> that's really that's your review. This is ninety minutes. Yes. Yes. A plus. A yes. plus. You don't need more than ninety minutes. I added yes. to be in there, and it was too many syllables, and I screwed it up. Anyway. Um, Yes, I agree with everything Devendra said and half of what Tasha said. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I had a blast with this movie. And I think it's fun in a, in a maybe it's just this last couple of months around uh, award seasons and our, our end of the year and all that stuff. But it just feels like every movie is, you know, a hundred pound gorilla. You know, every mm-hmm. movie needs to land and be this magnum opus and you got to spend two and a half to three hours in it and it has to put you through the ringer. And this movie is just like, hey, man, you want to just like sprint for a while? <laughs> you want to just have a friggin' fun time? Let's go. Let's go. And 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 it was it felt like a brush of breath of fresh air. It felt like Soderbergh is like, yeah, I can just kind of rip one of these off during COVID. No problem. <laughs> And move well, on, on to the that next... note, Jeff, on that note, this is, I think, the first film we've yeah. watched 
that acknowledges COVID in any way. I was going to bring that up. And I know that you have in particular, Dave, mentioned your desire to not have movies do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I Mm -hmm. thought it worked here really well. And I thought in particular, this is the kind of movie Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't really hold up for a long, long time, right? It's, It's the kind of movie that you look back on and you're like, Sandra Bullock was like, worried about the net you know like she was like oh oh my god look at that look at that old pc she was oh boy that that is not how code works and i agree with devendra i was really i really appreciated the fact that this movie had felt like it had some verisimilitude when it came to the tech angle of it and how people who work in those kinds of jobs behave and deal with tech and it didn't feel like it was pandering to the audience it felt like it was a person who knows what they're doing, doing what they know how to do. And I like that. But also, it it still feels like a movie that in 10 to 15 years, you're going to look back on and go, oh, man. Oh, man. Smart devices. You remember those? You remember how they worked? Oh, geez. Uh, and I think this movie leans into that a bit by saying, hey, we're not just going to, you know, box ourselves, paint ourselves into a corner technologically. We're literally going to send it in a very specific year mm-hmm. when this technology was this technology and right. also we had to deal with COVID and it's super specific and just that's what it is. That's where we are yeah. and that's what it is. And I respect that. I think I thought it worked. I thought it spoke to our time and I think it will be a bit of a time capsule like that uh, and sort of taking a, uh, a, a bug and turning it into a feature, you know? Mm. Um, I also really love how Soderbergh casts his movies in very interesting unconventional ways tasha talked about uh, zoe kravitz who is fantastic in this movie and my esteem for her has only continued to rise every single thing i saw her in um uh, big little lies she was great in i i, I really think she has a is a uh under-recognized talent and that hopefully will uh catch fire based on this um but it's it's so cool how he cast this movie. There's so many interesting, weird casting choices, like Derek Delgado, Agadio. <laughs> yeah. Who the whole first part of this movie, I was like, why do I know that dude? <laughs> and of course, it was because my brain wasn't putting actor in it, you know. And, and right. I, of course, I loved uh, um, in and of itself. In and of itself, magic so man. Much. Yes, He's magic man. In and of yeah. itself, I think you know one of the most amazing things that came out last year uh, in any medium, and uh, just seeing him <laughs> in you know, in this movie, I thought it was cool. And it, it, it felt like Soderbergh was like, man, I love that. I just got to work with that guy. He's cool. He's cool. I'm going to make him a creepo, <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, but across the board, like, like uh, Rita Wilson shows up in this movie, you know, it's like, I haven't seen Rita Wilson in a while. Maybe I'm just not watching the stuff she's in, but it's it just cool. I just thought it was, you know, it, it's an interesting, atypical kind of casting choices that he tends to make all the time. And I appreciate that. I too uh, was reminded of Run Lola Run, not in small part because the hair is very similar mm, uh, between so. the main characters. Um, but you know, I can't wait to talk more in spoilers uh, uh, about the third actress, which I think is 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 really great. And I just had such a easy breezy fun time. It's a great taut thriller. Like like you said, Tasha, I I never at any point went well, that's a dumb move or <laughs> I don't buy that. Or, you know, none, none of those people are behaving in, in a realistic way. It, 
which is, I think, key in these kinds of movies, these kinds of thrillers where you're, a, you know, a, a normal person is put into extraordinary circumstances. You know, it's it's almost it's almost die hard with a computer. This movie, um, and uh, the 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 main character consistently makes very smart decisions and does really smart things. And um, yeah, it's it's just fun. It's just really fun. You're in, you're out quick. Uh, it's an easy movie to recommend, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything you guys have said and half of what Tasha said. Uh, I, I think <laughs> Ooh, which right. half? And I'll just say that as a tech worker in Seattle who lived for several years in a one-bedroom apartment <laughs> less than two miles away from where this woman's apartment is. And also uh, used to have very vividly dyed blue hair. Yeah. It's true. Uh, I found this to be actually like a really uh, sort of well-done depiction of Seattle downtown, you know, just in terms of like capturing the sort of more memorable uh, visual elements of it, I would say. Um, I really like this movie as well. I think it's really well made. You know, I'll agree with 25% of what Tasha said, which is that I, I did feel like at the end of the day, this is a really well done genre exercise that doesn't have that much to say. It, it does say like, hey, hey, you guys know uh, how people were making people listen to these things? Maybe uh, maybe reflect on what the uh, downside of that might be. Maybe reflect on what the implications of having these devices might be. You know, like yeah. it, it, it's asking that. It's but it's not saying anything too strong about it. It's just kind of like, hey, here's a fun thriller, and maybe think about this stuff that we're doing as a society. And that's kind Except of that yeah. that thing can save you if you well help somebody figure out your murderer. Right. The yeah. th the thing the speaker is doing is good. Yeah, uh, I, I feel yeah. like one of the more interesting things about this movie is that it does deal with this issue of privacy, but it doesn't deal with the issue of privacy as though it's restrictive, as though it's something that we need to take into account. Like, given how much we were just talking about Black Black Mirror earlier, I, I think it's interesting that this isn't a cautionary tale about having smart speakers in your house. There's no vilification of the smart speakers. There's no like demonization of uh, you have this device that's listening to you at all times. It's just an element. It's like it, yeah. it, it's no yeah. more like like dangerous or evil than the recorder the recorder that uh, John Travolta is carrying around in Blowout is is dangerous or evil. It's a piece of technology. And because there's this piece of technology, we have this recording. And because we have this recording, uh, we have this mystery. It's just a plot element without any particular like emotional attachment to the existence of the thing. And like, like it or don't, I think it's just a really interesting and unusual approach given how we normally handle technology and in, in thriller movies in particular these days. I don't Agreed? know if I completely agree with that. I mean, I, I think you're right to a point, but I, I do think the movie has a little more to say than just, Hey, this is a thing. Can we do spoilers? Sure. Cause I think we're going to get into some, some talk about the ending here. Is that cool? Sure. Um, all right, let's get the spoilers for uh, Kimmy starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're going to see this coming. No. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right, Jeff, what do you think Kimmy's trying to say about technology? Well, I, I do think there is. there is... I agree with you, Dave, in the sense that it is not really a message movie per se, mm -hmm. but I do think it has a bit more teeth than than perhaps Tasha was characterizing, which is, I do think it is it is pointing out that, hey, nothing is private and we right. should all be aware right. of that, right? There's that, mm -hmm. that, that great moment 
where uh, the big, bad, scary, uh, vaguely foreign uh, hacker type is in a room and uh, she goes, uh, you'll need my password. And he's like, nah, we got that. You know, it's yeah. like, it's that like, was a great moment. It it's was like, so great. Yeah. You expect you, you kind of think, you know how that moment's going to play out. And yeah. like, no, we already have that. Yeah. It's, it's, like, like, uh, it's like a subversion of that trope. Right? Yeah. There's no, <laughs> there's no information that you want to keep private. That is private. Or the other guy that, you know, the sort of uh weird dude that she, you know, she, the, the Romanian guy uh, that she's constantly talking to uh, who, who's like, Oh, what? And she's like, Oh yeah. But those are decoupled with the person. He's like, what? told you that that's bullshit you know it's, <laughs> it's uh it's so the movie is constantly just saying mm-hmm. anytime you think there's even a hint of anonymity or privacy mm-hmm. that's la- that notion is laughable mm-hmm. um and I, I i so i think there's a bit more teeth to it than than perhaps Tasha yeah, and, yeah and but i think, I think the teeth sort of, specifically yeah. are, are latching into corporations right i think right. that what's what's being vilified here is when corporations tell you like oh no uh we respect your privacy like that's the bullshit when corporations tell you oh there's no way we'll use your your data that we're collecting uh against you in any way or pass it on to anybody else that's bullshit there's a lot going on in this movie that's that's pretty small and subtle that doesn't get underlined about how about the deceptive and selfish nature of corporations and not just in the sense of uh hey you have done something that might hurt our bottom line so we're going to send people to murder you which is maybe a little overstated but just the smallness of a kind of our our opening sequence where we're seeing a news interview with the Derek Delgado character where he is the CEO of the corporation that makes the Kimmy smart device and he's explaining the IPO that's coming up and he's sitting on a zoom call with an an interviewer he's in front of a uh, very handsome mounted bookcase full of books but Soderbergh's camera drifts off to the the side and you know that he's in his garage he's surrounded by piled up detritus he's wearing pajama pants uh, I love that part that's all of us right now it's very 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 accurate but it's also very much communicating that whenever a corporation says something to you they're you're you're getting the presentation that they want you to get and Mm -hmm. everything that that character goes on to say about the Kimmy smart device is a straight up lie meant to comfort people and the movie has no compunctions about revealing that everything they're saying about it is is self-serving everything that they do in order to preserve their secrets is you know at the expense of human lives uh without any compunction whatsoever but i don't think any of that is uh, striking out mm-hmm. against the tech or blaming the tech it's yeah, yeah. it's blaming people it's it's the business mainly i mean uh, at least we have a movie that finally uh taps into the uh the drama of ceos just murdering people you know like <laughs> finally finally somebody well, this is uh, you know uh, michael clayton another movie yeah, i would yeah. i would say is heavily in, inspires this one this, this um, is very much a michael clayton side story almost like the 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 assassins and everything yeah. yeah 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 but uh the other thing i would say about what this movie's trying to say if if anything is about um people who are responsible for reviewing this kind of content i think there was a story this week that Facebook pays contractors something like a dollar fifty per hour mm-hmm. um, to look at you know extremely upsetting material of like suicides and murders and stuff like that because that's kind of the model that a lot of tech companies have used for moderation is like contracting it out to other places um, and I think this movie asks you to think like 
hey, what about the people who are listening to this stuff? Like, what what are their lives like, and what are the implications of ask of like asking them to consume and act act on this material? Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of like questions asked is kind of what I would describe mm-hmm. it as. Like, there's a lot of, like, she's stuff probably brought up. living uh, the best life of somebody yes, uh, inspecting yes, she's that not content. An, an underpaid contractor. I love that apartment. Yeah. I just oh. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could have, I could have had an apartment like that. You were us, so you close, know? Dave. I remember, I was I remember right your apartment. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so a couple of things I want to bring up about just the the ending of this movie. First of all, um, I love the cinematography, Devinger. You alluded to it, but the first half of the movie is extremely tightly controlled camera movements, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like either it's stationary shot or it's like a dolly or something very, very like controlled and deliberate. And then when she leaves the apartment, it just goes wild. Like it just is low angle, shaky cam handheld. And I just thought it was really, really well done because it's obviously capturing her anxiety of being out Mm -hmm. in the world as well. Um, So I love that change of just like from a form perspective, I thought it was really well done. Um, That said, I did find the very end to be just a little bit silly. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) the final five minutes when she nail guns these guys. And then she's able to issue three commands to Kimmy before they tried to stop her. Best drop of sabotage ever. (laughs) So good. And she she knows about home repair. Her father was a contractor. They set it up. All it's very good, yeah, it's a good up. screen, you know, script thing right there. It's like they give you the little tip at the beginning there, but yeah. Uh, but it I do was not, a little bit goofy. It does not particularly yeah. bother me that when she gets her hands on a weapon, the the stakes change. What bothers me about the ending, what I just find completely <laughs> ridiculous, and I complained <laughs> about this on the the next picture show podcast when we talked about Woman in the Window, uh, the Netflix film from last year starring Amy Adams. That's also a modern update on Rear Window, and and also just has a ton in common with with this movie in particular. Mm-hmm. The main character in both of these movies um, and in copycat actually also came to mind as a movie where this happens. You have women who have been assaulted and are terrified of, of people and the outdoors. Mm. They're agoraphobic. They, they get anxiety attacks. They get dizzy and sick if they even contemplate leaving the small place where they're protected. And then they're viciously attacked in horrible ways uh, and they survive it. And that fixes their agoraphobia just yeah. instantly and completely. And I referred to it on the next the next picture show podcast is it's the Gilligan's coconut uh, idea of mental health. You know, you get hit in the head with a coconut, you get amnesia, Mm -hmm. you get hit in the head with another coconut. It fixes the amnesia. The second assault fixes PTSD instantly. Like, why? Why aren't we using this as a therapy? Mm -hmm. Just scare the hell out of people with PTSD and they're fixed forever. It's fine. I I think you just launched the new uh, Purge franchise, Tasha. (laughs) Wow. You know, I was going to make that same point. I had the same thought at the at the mm-hmm. end of the movie. It, it's it's a little bit insulting to, to think that this this trauma caused such a reaction, and then more of that trauma is the yeah. answer to the right. to the problem. They it, they yeah. all lived happily ever after. I, also, yeah. I was hoping I did not want to see the last shot of her uh, happily walking out to <laughs> to to have a sandwich at the food truck. I wanted the last shot to be her finally able to get that tooth fixed. Like right. Ooh, yeah. that should yeah. be the big triumph is like, I'm not going to put off this horrible tooth problem anymore. You know, that's uh it was a, I think 
baffling final shot to this movie. Like it just Well, it's also a, a yeah. weird freeze frame. It it feels mm-hmm. like yes. the end of a an 80s like TV sitcom. Yes. It's, yeah. Yes. Like the, 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 da, 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 I mean, it's a, like it's a lovely music. smile from Zoe Kravitz. I mean, it's a beautiful yeah. little moment that they, is captured there. But yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's the it's the joke that they used to play at the end of uh, Police Squad episodes. It's just a, a complete cliche. And I, you know, Soderbergh knows what he's doing. He knows he's playing into this this cliche. But like, why he feels like that's a good thing to do? Now, mm-hmm. granted, I I would prefer what we got, which was the the sudden still frame of her smiling broadly while she stands by the food truck waiting for her sandwich then a still frame of her smiling broadly as she sits in the dentist chair with the, the dentist like wrist deep in her <laughs> no, mouth. No, that would have been you way know, better. That's... Jeff has very unique <laughs> ideas of entertainment. That's so, the, most, uh... that's the most, uh, most pressing issue at hand here yeah. is like get that thing fit. I mean, we literally spend <laughs> a, a, an inordinate <laughs> amount of time in the movie like worrying, like we get a whole discussion with the doctor saying it is going to affect your brain. This is bad. Get yeah, two, two stuff is bad. To the movie's credit, um, I, I think there is a poetic thing they're trying to say here, right? It's like she couldn't, she couldn't. The thing she couldn't do is get out of the house. And that whole sequence where she's like, you know, she tells the guy, I'll meet you downstairs, and she just she can't do it. Yeah, I felt it's, really it's almost like a bad. statement about mental health. Like that's the yeah. thing. I thought that was actually a, like a pretty good statement of, about mental health. Yeah. That things that are possible to many people and seem sort of trivial to many people for people who have mental health issues are insurmountable. And I think yeah. the movie is making a good point about that. That is then completely undermined by the. We ending. don't. Right. Here's the thing. We don't. We don't know anything else about the ending except she went down to the food truck. Yeah. That's that's it. And she's happier. Like we we don't know if they have a stable relationship. We do. Yeah. You know, we we don't know mm-hmm. how much else is different. Um. So I, I think the maybe it's six there, months later. You know who knows? But yeah. I don't know. But yeah. I mean, like it's a, not. The, the poetic we know that it's there. not six months later because <laughs> the the camera makes a point of catching the the neighbor that she's boffing. Who <laughs> one of my favorite small bits of characterization in this movie is that she invites this neighbor that she can see from across the way. They're they're having an ongoing thing. She invites him up to the apartment. They have sex immediately after he's like flopping on the bed, playing with his phone, <laughs> trying to talk to her about, yeah. you know, let's have, let's have, some pillow talk. Yeah. Let's have a little pillow talk. She's literally stripping the yeah, not on these dirty pillows. off the pillows, <laughs> not on these dirty stripping, pillows, fella. Yeah. Stripping the sheet off of the bed underneath him. Like she is pulling everything and, th- and throwing it to the laundry. She is just so clearly done with him. And it just tells you so much about where the character's mindset is and why this guy would turn down free sex with a, a beautiful woman. You know, he's being, he's very much being used and he feels disrespected. <laughs> and yeah. there's, there's a little bit of hurt there, but uh, hey, well, yeah. you're making a point about why it's definitely not six months later at the end. Yeah. That mm-hmm. said, he, at the end of the movie, he shows up at her place with a bouquet mm-hmm. and the, shot right before she goes down to join him is that same bouquet mm. only very mm. slightly decayed sitting oh, on the table. Oh, good, good. Hi, Tasha. Mm. That she's, been been buy, she's been buying the same bouquet for six months, <laughs> Tasha. going to keep it alive. That moment, to by the way, where... the time yeah, that he showed yeah, up yeah. and found her apartment full of corpses. The moment where he hits the door is just like, I, I cackled. Because that is, it is hilarious. It, it is just pure comedy. It's like, uh, she's on the phone call. It's like, yeah, and two dead bodies. And yeah, he's so oh, good. Pure. So when good. she shows up and he's yeah. like and she's like nine one one and yeah, I'm like yeah. if I'm him, I'm like running away at that point. <laughs> yeah. And he, she's yeah. covered in blood. Like yeah. she's she's visibly bleeding and there's a and man sweating. with his gut, you know, cut in on her living room. Yeah, like, yeah. 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 
And and she's just so very casual about like yeah, kind of holding up the oh just hang on a second finger. It's like <laughs> yeah, we'll get to you in your bouquet and your booty call in just a second. First, I got to get all the bodies out of my living room. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be with you in a minute. I'll say this though, like I also think like she she read to me as a character who was also not just like somebody who had a traumatic experience, but was possibly neurodivergent too. Like her, so, some of her habits. Some of the things like uh, so some of that would explain her character. And, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I think it's an interesting portrait of somebody who has a lot going on, you know, and the big issue at the beginning was she couldn't leave the door. She couldn't meet the she couldn't get him at the food truck. And now she can. And that it's a simple ending. But, uh, yeah, I, I think like maybe th- there is a bit of like you can, you can read that as shorthand. That seems a little too silly, too. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, guys, I think we can all agree on the message of this movie. Which is A, stalkers are good. Um, B, surveillance devices in the house are also good. Very good. And C, it's pretty impressive that Steven Soderbergh made a movie. And uh, you can wrap it up there. I'm feeling good um, so about that, him as a creator. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I think that he possibly has a future. I mean, uh, granted, he retired 10 years ago and was never going to make another movie again uh, as long as he lived. But, you know, that said, uh, in retirement, all of the movies that he's made. How many? Uh, how much of this movie was shot on an iPhone? That's my question. <laughs> uh, shockingly little. Shockingly little. Yeah, anyway, I, I don't think he did much. I just want to say quickly, this guy made a whole TV series. I'm not even talking about the Nick. He made Mosaic. Uh, nobody has seen this thing. It's it's written by Ed Solomon. That was the like iPad thing. Like you're the choose your own adventure story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not very good, but it was an interesting <laughs> experiment. And it's just like I love that he can still be out there trying new and different things, and then yeah. you know, go make an iPhone movie or something. Yeah, love him, love him. I love the Soderbergh. Love the Soderbergh. All right, guys, that's the uh, going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. Stay tuned to hear we'll be discuss- discussing next week. Find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from Tim McEwen, whose newest project is Varsity Blue. Check him out at the midnight right now. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker and YouTuber Kyle Corwith. Our weekly plugs bumper comes from Noah Ross. This episode was edited by Baby Zhang. Until next time, Tasha Robinson, just want to give you a big thanks again for joining us today. We really appreciate it, Tasha. I always uh, appreciate coming in, hanging out with you guys. Like uh, Angela, and we never got around to her name in the film, but her name's not Kimmy. Kimmy's the device. Right. Uh, her name is Angela. Like Angela in the film, uh, I'm very isolated living living in my home and uh, <laughs> being able to step into this conversation with you guys and, and hear your passion about film is always very exciting. Always a lot of Aww. fun. Well, uh, same. And we do, you know, I, I do the same every week on the Next Picture Show podcast. So be sure to check that show out, as well as all of uh, Tasha's other great work at Polygon.com. Next week, we're going to be reviewing Uncharted. And, and, and I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pre-announce the guest. I never do this. I never do this because it's bad luck. It's bad luck. Because, you know, sometimes you can announce a guest and it won't happen because something, the scheduling happens or the guest gets sick or, you know, whatever. But I'm going to announce it, Jeff. Can I announce it, Jeff? Can yeah, I, you're I building it up. Everyone's going to think you're going to say Dan Trachtenberg. It's not yeah. Dan Trachtenberg. It's not. We, Dan we Tra- got Nathan filling everybody. <laughs> talk about Uncharted. That's great. It is going to be a DLC film cast crossover. Christian Spicer. Yeah. For next week's episode of the film cast, we're going to be reviewing Uncharted here on the film cast. So uh, I'm really excited. It should be a really fun time. If you're a patron, stay tuned next uh, later this week for our Scream uh, 1 and 2 After Dark review with Brett Arnold. Uh, and until then, we'll see you later on the film cast. <laughs>